Everybody doing okay this morning? Are you like totally confused from yesterday or are we okay? Good. Cool. <laughs> I was having fun studying some things out with some people and I got five more questions in my own head. <laughs> but I love that. I love the realm of mystery. I love the idea that we're still working on understanding. I'm convinced that I will go and meet Jesus with more questions than answers. (laughs) But I'm okay with that because to me that's the exciting part, man. We're learning. We're growing. We're we're always growing and, and seeking him and trying to learn more. And there's incredible desire to all that. I, I like it. Hmm. A lot of good things going on. Um, let me make a couple real quick announcements if I can. There's a picnic this Sunday. And you're all invited. You're more than welcome to come. It's right after uh, the morning service. So morning service starts about 9.30 over somewhere. <laughs> and then after somewhere is... <laughs> <laughs> but somewhere around 1230, I would guess, probably. But it's not here. Some of the folks thought it might be here at the church. It's actually not here at the church. But if you go out of the church parking lot and turn right, like you're heading toward the circle in Abbottstown, uh, the, 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 the road closest to the circle, you'll see a business there called L&M Tire and Wheel. And you'll see their sign. When you turn left at L&M Tire and Wheel, it will take you three blocks. You'll run into the park. You run right into the park. Okay, and it's right there. It's actually called the Abbottstown Rec Park. Uh, So you're more than welcome to be a part of that if you'd like to come. Uh, We will have a good time. I know there's all kind of games that are planned and some different things, a lot of door prizes. And a big softball game at 3 o'clock. So if you want to bring a a glove or a bat or any of those kind of things and play a little softball, uh, we got some folks that are kind of excited about that. So you're welcome to be a part of that. I think that'll be fun. Okay? Carol, you're doing a tea on Sunday. I lost Carol. I knew she was here. There she is. You're doing tea Saturday night, 5 o'clock? Yeah. It's a benefit for a young girl named Rachel Heilman. Is, am I right? Not Rachel Heilman. No, no. I know Rachel. Hey, Rachel would like us to do a benefit for her, I'm sure. But I'm sorry. Emily Heilman, right? Okay. And she's how old? Two. She's two? Yeah. I thought, okay. I, thought, I had a... She was three, but she's two. Okay. She's two years old, and she will be there has a very rare disease, and it's one of the things we're just doing. Uh, it was kind of on Carol's heart to do a fundraiser, so it's a tea. It'll be back in the social hall at 5 o'clock. Uh, so you could come to the tea at 5 o'clock, have a little time of fellowship, uh, get a chance to pray with the little girl, I'm sure. Oh, wow, I didn't know that. Carol Forbes. Wow, that's cool. Okay, she's got an amazing heart, so that'll be good. Okay, so that would be cool. So a little speaker going on there. And then when that's all done, uh, it would be close to 7. And actually, Lisa Hicks will be preaching here Saturday night. And you will have a party if you're here with Lisa because she carries her own party with her. That's been my phrase about her for a while. She's like amazing. She scares me. Uh, (laughs) So good stuff. So if you want to be a part of any of that, that's all coming up this weekend. Should be a really, really good time. Okay? Everybody doing all right? Cool. Man, I think we ought to get right into this and go to Matthew 13. Let's pray. Father, we're just going to say thank you. God, we stand in awe of your wonder, your glory. We thank you for your majesty. We thank you for a love and a grace that's greater than we can even comprehend. And we ask you, Lord, just meet us here in a very special way today as we continue to pursue the things of your kingdom and God, a deeper and greater understanding of truth. And so we just pray, open our eyes that we might see 
Give us ears to hear, God, and a heart to know you better than ever before. Father, I'm just asking, meet us here. Let the Holy Spirit be our teacher, be our guide. And God, we thank you for loving us that much. We bless you, Lord, and ask God for your hand to be upon every one of us. As we continue just to yield our hearts and our lives to you, Holy Spirit, the word tells us you'll be our teacher. So you teach us today and help us to learn and grow from one another, even as we share back and forth. We thank you for the privilege of it and pray for your blessing and your help in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Everybody doing okay? Cool. Go to Matthew 13. We're going to look at verses 44, 45, and 46. I think it's a great place to start. One of the things that we find in the body of Christ, and can I talk to you just kind of real plain? I meet a lot, a lot of people. I get a chance to talk to a lot of folks. And one of the things that I hear uh, once you get into a conversation and talking with people is they oftentimes look at, 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 and I'm going to use the phrase church folk, and please hear that all in the right way, but they'll look at church folk with the idea of, well, they act one way on Monday and another way on Tuesday. How many would say that's probably true with a whole lot of the body of Christ? And, and it just shouldn't be. We, we, we really need to stabilize. We really need to get this thing. And there's a place where we just totally sell out, and that's one of the things that we're challenged with. Um, <laughs> I was in a very deep conversation last night, and it was pretty late. We had a board meeting, and then after the board meeting, into a deep conversation uh, with a lady on the phone, and uh, it was one of them things where you could tell her buttons had all gotten pushed. And for those of you that know me, I, I believe in buttonless Christianity. I just believe that if I don't have any buttons, you can't push them. And the problem isn't the person who's pushing my buttons. The problem is I have buttons that you can push. And when I can live in that arena where there's no more buttons, uh, I'll stay stable. I don't know if that makes sense to everybody. It does to me. And I really believe, again, another one of those favorite scriptures, but it's great peace have they that love thy law and nothing shall offend them. I honestly believe we can live unoffendable. I'm sure you've heard that from Pastor Dan. Uh, That's been a big place in my heart ever since I heard him preach that about five years ago. So there's a place there. And I think most of you know that, but there is that place Uh, But it really comes from, I think, this scripture right here would be a real key to that. So let's look at Matthew 13 for just a second. We're going to kind of continue talking about the kingdom. I want to talk to you about some things that are really big in my heart. We'll look at the price Jesus paid, okay? But in 13 and 44, here's what he says. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like unto a treasure hid in a field. The which, when a man has found, he hides. And for joy thereof, goes and sells everything he has and buys the field. Isn't that an amazing scripture right there? He, he sells everything he has to buy the field. Why? Because he found the treasure. He found the treasure. He, he found that it was the very thing he had been looking for all of his life. Can I say that? And once you found that, that's like an amazing thing. Part of the question comes down to this is that we have to really ask ourselves what we're after. Um, I was talking to a 50-year-old man last week, and I said to him, what do you want to be when you grow up? Because <laughs> he'd floated around so many different places and never stabilized. And that's his big problem, is he doesn't really know what he wants to do with his life. And he's now half over. You know, that's the way he was looking at it. And we were talking about that. There's this, there's this, there's this thing where you have to desire, you have to purpose in your own heart. What, what do you... What are you really after? What are you pursuing? See, the man who found the treasure in the field, he found the treasure in the field, and he got excited about it because it was the very treasure he wanted. He was seeking treasure. That's why he was in the field. Yeah. 
One of the things you got to decide is what do you want, okay? So when I read this, it says it's a, it, the kingdom of heaven is like unto a treasure hid in a field. It was hid in the field, but it was hid to be found. Can I tell you something I think is really cool? God gave me a, a word a couple years back that I think is really powerful. He said, he never hides things from us. He hides things for us. Do you understand what I just said? doesn't hide things from us. He hides things for us. And the visual picture that I got in my head, because I tell you about these pictures all the time, but the visual picture that I had in my head was pretty amazing. It was uh, hiding Easter eggs for the kids. Do you ever hide Easter eggs for your kids? Did you hide them from them or for them? Do you understand what I'm saying? Yeah. And, and you know what? The little kids, when they find the eggs, don't they get excited? But how much more do you get excited watching them find them? Come on. Your heavenly father gets excited watching you find the eggs. <laughs> Yay. He doesn't hide them from you. He hides them for you so that you'll go find them. It's like exciting in you. And, and when you find them, you get excited. But when you find them, he gets excited. It's like a treasure hid in a field. Then a guy finds it, so he sells everything, completely sells out, purposes in his heart. You know what? All that stuff doesn't even matter because I found this. Remember that yesterday we were talking quite a bit about the transformation that took place in my life about 11 years ago. I think I found treasure that I didn't even know was there. But once I found it, I got pretty excited about it. I'm building on it ever since. That's huge to me. That's, that, that is, that's not a big deal. That's the big deal. Yeah. Read a little further because he says something very similar. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like unto a merchant man seeking goodly pearls, who when he found one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had and bought it. The gospel is the pearl of great price. I'm trying to understand, you know, everybody here probably knows the word gospel means good news. I think everybody's okay with that. Um, boy, there's a bunch of stuff that runs through my head. But, but let me tell you this. The good news. Jesus has come. We'll talk a lot of, today again. We're going to go back and we're going to rehearse the message. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. But you've got to understand something. Jesus lives in me. If we can ever catch the reality of that. Jesus lives in me. We read Psalm 23. Everybody here probably knows Psalm 23. One of the things in Psalm 23 says at the very end, what's David saying? I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Why? Because that's old covenant. New covenant, you are the house of the Lord forever. Yay. <laughs> you are the house of the Lord. He lives in you. That's like amazing to me. He lives in me. I know that Pastor Dan would have talked to you about the difference between living for Christ and living through Christ, right? Have you talked about some of that? Is that a phrase that he's hit pretty hard? I would think he would because that's a real passion for him. But do you understand? He's in you, living through you to touch the world. We're going to come back and look at our ambassadorial role today. We're going to talk about some of that. But David says, I will dwell in the house of the Lord. And according to the words of the New Testament, I am the house of the Lord. That's a, that's a big deal. That's like pretty cool. So we look at that, okay? So what I want to do today, I want to come back. I want to rehearse this dominion mandate, try to understand a little deeper what was saying, where the battle is between the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light. And we'll talk about some of that. And we'll look at a whole bunch of things because one of the things that I find is, Hosea, what is it, four and six? Does anybody know? I think it's four and six, I'm pretty sure. My people are destroyed 
for the lack of knowledge. We're not destroyed because it's the will of God. We're not destroyed because of... We're destroyed for the lack of knowledge. So I'm thinking, hey, we ought to get knowledge. <laughs> okay? There's some things we need to know. Obviously, God wants us to know some things. And as, you know, when we talked yesterday, we were talking about the, aha, when you're reading the scripture and how neat that feels. That's God revealing stuff to us through the power of the Holy Spirit. It wasn't hidden from us. It was hidden for us. Do you understand that when I say it that way? So now it's there for us. And, and I believe that there's so much in this book. One of the things, I've written very few articles for magazines. One, one article I wrote a while back, and it was on the inexhaustible word of God. And in that article, I wrote a statement that I think is incredibly true. But it says that if I lived to be 100 years old and I studied eight hours a day every day for the rest of my life, I still don't have it all. It's inexhaustible. Do you understand the word inexhaustible? We could study and read and read and study and keep learning and growing. And we'd still be learning and growing because there's so much to this thing. It's like amazing. But I love when the new stuff starts jumping out at me. Let's go back to Genesis 126. We were there yesterday for a while, but it's fundamental, okay? If you remind me later on, I want to walk you through the two gardens. Just remember that, the two gardens. Because the Garden of Eden and the Garden of Gethsemane have incredible parallels, okay? So we're going to look at that for just in a, in a little while. And I don't want to miss that, but I don't want to start there. I kind of really do because I love it, but I'm not going <laughs> to because I'm patient. <laughs> okay, Genesis 1:26. we're coming back to this. God says, let us make man in our own image, after our, or in our image, after our likeness, and let him have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the fowl of the air, over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. I think that's an amazing thing. The key word here is them. Every, I, I, I trust that every one of you understands the key word in this is them. Let them have dominion. And to me, that's an amazing word, them. And the reason that's amazing to me is this, is because God didn't say let us. He said let them have dominion. So it's the them that makes mankind God's legal representative on the earth. Do you understand when I say that? We're God's legal representative on the earth. So, so that's why Jesus has to become a man. Now, we hammered that yesterday and we understood Jesus had to become a man because man has dominion, right? Everybody okay with that? So we, we, we established that, okay? So if somebody says, well, why did God create man? Well, it seems like to have dominion. Let them have dominion, okay? That's a, a mandate from heaven, okay, to, to have dominion over all the earth. So we, we read this, okay, this dominion mandate, God gives us dominion over the entire physical realm. But one of the things you have to understand is this is about rulership, not ownership. Rulership, not ownership, okay? We're called to rule, not own. Does that make sense to everybody? Why? Everything I have isn't mine anyway. Would you say that everything you have isn't really yours? Do you understand? Um, I mean, honestly, it's God's car. It's a, is that okay? Why? Because I gave him my life. One of, the, one of the neatest phrases that ever came to my heart was when I made Jesus Lord. I, 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 well, we'll talk about this. We, we, we've, we've totally over-focused on heaven. And I, I'll spend some time probably talking about that. But when I made Jesus Lord, I didn't realize it meant that he became the owner of my life. Who would say that's true? You understand what I'm saying? When you made Jesus Lord, one of the things that we, we did was we made him owner, right? If, if you rent a house, who do you rent from? 
the landlord. Why do they call him the landlord? Because he owns the land. Do you understand that? So when I made Jesus Lord, he literally becomes, if I could use the terminology, my life Lord. Life Lord is an important word. Life Lord, he's the Lord of my life. Now that becomes major, that becomes huge, that becomes everything. When we look at that, okay, we, we give Jesus ownership or lordship of our life, he's the owner of everything, okay? But when, when we come into this place and we understand dominion, it's about rulership, not ownership. But rulership carries with it authority. And that's one of the things that we really have to focus on is our authority and what God's called us to. So I want to walk you through some things that have to deal with that. Yesterday we hit Psalm 115. It was verse 16. And, and, and I think that that's such a, a strong verse. He says, the heaven, even the heavens belong unto thee, O Lord, but the earth has he given to the children of men. That's a huge thing. Because in my mind, we've over-focused on heaven. We've over-focused on heaven. I got saved because I didn't want to go to hell. I wanted to go to heaven. It had absolutely nothing to do with bringing the reality of the kingdom of heaven to the earth. It had nothing to do with dominion. It had nothing to do with walking out my created value. It had nothing to do with this new creation reality that God had done in my heart. It had everything to do with I don't want to go to hell because that looked like a scary place to me. And I don't want to go to heaven because that sounds like fun. Okay? <laughs> okay. And then after I got saved and I'm in church a while, and I'll be real honest with you. Can I be real transparent? We're having church. We're doing, who was in the meetings when you had two weeks of revival? Anybody ever do that? Y'all know what I'm talking about? I'm an old Pentecostal. So we did the two-week revivals all the time. And, and, I, and, you know, after about four or five days, I'm like, oh, my gosh. I just realized heaven's going to be like this. We're going to be in church forever. <laughs> and it kind of bummed me out. Like, it was like, oh, my gosh, you know, because my heart wasn't all in the right place. Why? Because I didn't, come, I didn't come to Jesus to express him on the earth. I came to Jesus so I could escape the earth. Anybody understand what I just said? Come on, you, you, most of you here did that, <laughs> okay? Yeah, and, and that's, that's a reality. So, so in my mind, things got a little twisted. I started wondering about this whole deal. Did you do that? Some of you might have done that. And, and as I looked at that, I thought, wow, wait a minute. Because when I think about this, I'm thinking, I have this escapist theology, that probably a lot of us got saved under. I even talked about it yesterday preaching, you know, one day we'll escape this old garbage dump of a world. We're going to go walk on streets of gold. Hallelujah. <laughs> we, we'd get all wound up over it. You can get a church to shout when you preach like that. That's absolutely nothing to do with anointing. <laughs> but we thought it did. Okay. Y'all follow where I'm at? So this escapist theology thing was really a, a, a big deal. And a lot of people got, got into the idea of, man, let's get saved. It was a fire insurance policy. I don't want to go to hell. I'm going to go to heaven. And we, we signed our name on the dotted line, so to speak. And, 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 and we understand. But it was never meant to be that way. In the, in the Genesis account, if we can begin to understand, and I'm going to talk to you about this. Again, everything in my heart comes back to 1 Corinthians 15. Jesus comes to restore what Adam lost. Don't miss that. That's like a big deal. Jesus comes to restore. Jesus is called the second Adam, came to restore everything the first Adam lost. Set things back in order the way God intended. That's a big deal. So we see that, all right? In this Genesis account, Adam's created in a kingdom of light, okay? It's easy to say it that way, all right? But then he fell into sin and he introduced a counterfeit kingdom. What is it? It's kingdom of darkness. It's a counterfeit kingdom. 
it's, it was never meant to be, okay? So now this kingdom of darkness. In Scripture, light represents knowledge, and darkness represents ignorance. So in a kingdom of darkness, the king rules through lies and deception. Do you understand that? In a kingdom of darkness, if darkness represents ignorance, then it's a domain where the king rules by ignorance. Lies, deceptions, we're blinded to the truth. Do you understand that? So what was Satan doing? He was trying to blind people to the truth so we wouldn't have an understanding. Okay? Let me go here. Second Corinthians, go to 4 and 4. Let me try that. I think that's right. Second Corinthians 4, chapter 4. I got five marked. Here's four. Okay? Yeah, I thought that's where it was. Go ahead and turn there because you need to see this. This is huge. Remember that I said in a counterfeit kingdom, okay, if there's a kingdom of light and a kingdom of darkness, light represents knowledge, darkness represents ignorance, then in the kingdom of darkness, the king rules through ignorance, right? Watch this. Lies and deceptions. Look at four and four. In whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. In darkness, they're blinded. Right? Who did it? The God of this world. What's he talking about? He's talking about Satan. Okay, so Satan blinds us. Remember yesterday when I was talking about, about the, the pastor and the deacon? We were talking yesterday about the pastor and the deacon come in, and he's going to make the real appointments now because the pastor didn't understand his authority. Imagine if the pastor never called my friend out in western Pennsylvania. If he never called to find out if that deacon was allowed to do what he did. Follow, follow where I'm at? So all of a sudden the pastor just submits to, okay, the deacon must have the authority. I'm going to let him do that. Okay, now who's running the church? The pastor or the deacon? The deacon's running the church. If the deacon's running the church, because now he has blinded the eyes of the pastor. Why? Because the pastor doesn't understand. He's the one with the appointed authority. The state overseer appointed the pastor to run the church, but the pastor has submitted his authority to the deacon because he didn't know he was really in charge. Do you understand how real that is in our life? And we've allowed Satan to eat our lunch in certain places of our life because we didn't understand that we had the authority to take back what he's trying to steal. Oh, that's good preaching right there. Yeah. If you were more awake, you'd have shouted. Okay. <laughs> but, but, but follow what I'm saying because what I'm saying is a big deal. You have to understand. And here's the deal, and this is the honest truth. For most of the body of Christ, we don't even understand our authority. And I can't operate in authority I don't understand. So what are we operating under? Ignorance. Ignorance is darkness. My people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. Do you get it? Do you understand what I'm saying? So what's happening is, over the last six, seven weeks, what's happening is our understanding is getting brighter. What's happening? Light's coming. Darkness is leaving. We're getting a better understanding of who we are, who we're created to be. Because I can't walk in an authority I don't understand. Oh, that's good right there. My son's an IT professional. He understands all this IT stuff. So when we start talking about computers and some different things like that, he'll start talking to me in a language. I understand tongues better than this. <laughs> At least I get a gift of interpretation once in a while. <laughs> okay. 
IT stuff blows my mind. You know what I mean? And all of a sudden, it's you know megabytes, and 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 and, and I'm thinking, well, there's the Jebusites and the Gergesites and the Hivites and the Perizzites. I know all themites, okay, but but here's the deal. I couldn't, I couldn't, I couldn't, I couldn't even come close to doing what he does. Because I have no understanding of that. But if it was the call of God on my life to do that, I would pour myself into understanding it. Do you understand that it's the call of God on your life to walk out a kingdom mandate? Then we ought to pour our life into understanding what is my authority? What is my position? What is the mandate of heaven on my life? Because that is a big deal. Go ahead. Okay, we were talking about this in the car this morning. This is so nailing it. I'm just going to add to it and shoot a question to you. Go ahead. All right, this is, this is going to go towards marriage, lean towards marriage. And we were actually talking about Jezebel and Ahab, but I, we were talking about there's a deception. Just we don't, I, the whole marriage thing at large, saved or unsaved, does not understand the authority of the husband, the hu- and the husband doesn't understand the authority. You, when Anthony and I got married, you said about the umbrella. Mm-hmm. Would you please insert that here? And I guess the real question is, explain the umbrella, the authority of the husband, the submission of the woman, and the authority that, that the husband has over the woman, and how she should understand that authority. And he should take wow. his authority. You're really wanting to open up a can, aren't you? Okay, there's probably a parallel here. We're going to stretch to get to the parallel, okay? But I'm wondering how that all comes to fit. But I'll touch it. Ephesians chapter 5, most of you are somewhat familiar with the, uh, uh, this section. It's a pretty strong section. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to pull all the right numbers. It's either verse 21 or 22 starts out like this. And it says, submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. We miss that sometimes. We get real strong on wives, submit yourself unto your husbands. And we don't even understand the word submit there. But what I want to tell you is this. There's two different places where it says submit. If it, is, it, is it starting 21 and then go to 22? Yeah, 21. In 21, it says, submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. Now, when he says that, that's one Greek word, submit. Then, and that word submit there actually means to yield to one another. I'm not living for me. I'm living for you. You're saying you're not living for me. I'm living for you. And there's a, there's a mutual understanding of we are pouring our lives into each other. But then the next word there in verse 22 where it says, Wives, submit yourself unto your own husbands, even as under the Lord. For the husband is the head of the church, even, or is, is the, the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ also is the head of the church and the Savior of the body. Right? Then it goes on and says, Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church, and he gave himself for it. Okay? Uh, that he might sanctify and cleanse it by the washing of the water of the word. Okay? But when you read this, what we're looking at is that first word submit, we understand to some degree it's a mutual submission where we're yielding ourselves to one another. But that second word submit where it says, wives, submit yourself unto your own husband, completely different Greek word. And you've got to understand in the language, there's a whole lot of translation here. But the Greek word there is actually a Greek word called hypertunzo. The word hypertunzo literally would mean to come under the umbrella. Wives come under the umbrella of your husband. Where the husband, underneath that umbrella, she is submitting herself to come under his umbrella to allow him to cover her. 
There's a covering. A husband covers a wife under the umbrella. Do you follow what I'm saying? And that covering is a covering of security. It's a covering of leadership. It's a covering of, of, of uh, this, that, that security isn't just, it, there, there's physical security. There's financial security. There's emotional security. She is coming under his umbrella. She is coming under his leadership or his authority as a covering over her. It is his job to cover her spiritually, physically, financially, mentally, emotionally. That's his job. Wives submit, come under the umbrella of your husband's authority. Do y'all follow that? That's a good word right there. Somehow that fits. I'm not sure. <laughs> okay, but she got excited about it. Okay, <laughs> okay. But there's a covering, and that's really what that's talking about. It's coming under the umbrella. Okay, might go into that later on a little deeper, uh, and maybe we'll even look at that as we're in the gardens. Okay. But what I read in this, and, and what I find is, it, there's a, I guess what you were saying is there's a lot of times we don't have an understanding. There's an ignorance there. And there's a deception. And that, that's, that's where it would all fit. Now it makes sense to me. The deception comes is because out of that ignorance, Satan has blinded us. And how many would understand that even in the marital aspect, you can look at that. But for those, I'm 50 years old. I'm 51. So I can talk to you about this. But, you know, 30 years ago, 40, year, 40 years ago, uh, women began really pushing the whole equal rights thing. And, and uh, man, I'm a big fan of equal rights. I, don't, I think equal work equal pay. I'm good with all that. But there was a feminist movement, and most of you know the story, and they burned their bras and all those kind of things, and they were going to make their stand and, and all that. And there came a place where now all of a sudden there wasn't a cooperation in the house, there was a competition in the house. It was never meant to be a competition, it was meant to be a cooperation. We're coming together. And, and that's where the challenge came in. The, and then all of a sudden now the enemy's on your shoulder. And there's a lot of the, a lot of the women. And I'm not saying you guys. This was a long time ago. But because none of you would do this. Uh, <laughs> but, but the enemy was, was on the shoulder of a lot of women. You know, well, you're better than them and you don't need them. And all of a sudden now we got to the place where we don't need one another. And there was a pushing away and, and a whole lot of that. I'm, I'm believing the body of Christ is coming back to that. It does frighten me a little bit with this idea in mind that I think sometimes when I first started pastoring, which was a almost 30 years ago, it seemed like the divorce rate in America was high, but in the church, it was much lower. And how many know today you can't tell the difference? The statistics are absolutely across the board, churched or unchurched. Isn't that a shame? Because we don't understand covenant. God help us to get that. We've got to get to a place where we understand covenant. Covenant is much more than just a promise. Covenant is much more than just a commitment. Covenant is much more than just a declaration. I'm going to tell you something. Covenant. God, God's a God of covenants. You open that book, it's a book of covenants. He's a covenant-keeping God, and he'll hold us to our covenants. We take vows, and we say before God and man. You've got to understand something. Ecclesiastics 4 and 4 says it's better not to even vow a vow than to vow a vow and break it, because God has no pleasure in fools. That's strong language. That's written in the Hebrew. You gotta understand when they use that word fools in Hebrew, that was strong language. Remember that Jesus said, if you, when you say thou fool, when you call a man a fool, he says in Matthew, what chapter five, he said, it's like, it's like murder. So, so that's strong when he says that God's serious about our covenants. We need to be serious about covenants. Oh, I could preach this a while. But I'm really off track now. <laughs> okay. But, but it's strong. It's really in my heart. And there's a place where we just got to really understand. This is a big deal. Covenant's a big deal with God. Wow. Anyway, let's go back to this. Satan blinds the eyes of people. That's how he did. That's how uh, now he's, he's ruling. Uh, a kingdom of darkness is ruled through ignorance. 
our eyes are blinded because we don't even understand who we're created to be. So that's how Satan wants to get to an advantage. My people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. If we knew who we were, we wouldn't be destroyed. How many know? Samson would have never been destroyed if he'd have understood his identity. Samson would have never been destroyed if he knew who he, was, who he was. He'd have never been in Delilah's lap. Do you understand what I just said? That's a big deal. We've got to get this. It's always about identity. We need to understand that. That's a big deal right there. So Jesus comes bringing this message. What's he say? Repent. What's it mean? Change the way you think. Why? Because you've been lied to and deceived. If I keep thinking, watch this, I'm the pastor, the deacon thinks he's in charge, he steps up to the plate, he tells me it's not about me, I can't make the appointments, he's going to make the appointments, and all of a sudden now, what's going on? The deacon's now in charge, and I'm letting him, why? Because I don't know my position, I don't know my identity, I don't know my authority, and he's ruling through lies and deception. Do you understand that? That's a big deal. So when we see that, we have to get into our mind and start our focus right to this place where we start to understand I'm not going to let him lie to me anymore. I'm not buying the lie. You know how many times I've rebuked the devil that way? I'm not buying that lie. That's a good rebuke to the devil, right? Get out of here, devil. I'm not buying that lie. I will tell you something that might shock you, but I believe every one of us in this room, it would be easy for me to say the devil lies to you a hundred times a day. Do you understand what I just said? The devil lies to you a hundred times a day. I had a man in my office, he was going through a really difficult place, but he lives in a, do you know there's people that just live in a difficult place? Yeah. Like you can get them out of there 97,000 times and they'll get back in 97,001. It's almost like that's their zip code. <laughs> and he come in one day and he had this whole whiny thing going on. And you know, you gotta, for those of you that know me, I got an incredible heart. I love people. I think it's probably the greatest gift God gave me is the love that I love people with. But in the process of that, sometimes you just get tired of the same wine. <laughs> and, he, and he come in one day and he's whining and whining. And I'm, What's up with you, man? Nobody loves me. Everybody hates me. I said, shut up. <laughs> That's not true. Everybody doesn't hate you. Everybody doesn't even know you. Only the people who know you hate you. <laughs> <laughs> you can't say everybody hates you everybody doesn't even know you <laughs> once they know you another story <laughs> how did we get there I don't know <laughs> the devil lies <laughs> that's it it's just a lying devil but sometimes we buy into that lie and sometimes what we've got to do as men and women of understanding, we've got to just be able to tell devil, I'm not buying into your lies. I'm tired of your lies. I'm not buying that lie anymore. Y'all follow that? Because there's a place where you, you got to know truth. The antidote to ignorance is knowledge. The antidote to ignorance is knowledge. You got to know truth, right? Makes sense to me. So that's a big deal right there. Okay, so Jesus says, repent, change the way you think because you've been lied to and deceived. I've come and I brought my kingdom with me. He's reintroducing the kingdom of God on the earth. Do you understand that he was given us a kingdom? Luke 22, go there. Luke 22, okay? I mean, everything I'm gonna talk to you about, I'm just gonna try to do the very best I can to back it up with scripture. So let's go to Luke 22, okay? And look at verse 29, I believe it's 29. It is. I appoint 
I'm sorry. I, I do this a lot. I get excited and don't give you a chance to turn there after I told you to turn there. Okay. <laughs> Luke 22, 29. What's he say? I think you'll see it in there. I appoint unto you a kingdom, even as the Father has appointed unto me. I appoint unto you what? A kingdom. What's he talking about? Kingdom mandate. You and I were called to rule on this world in the kingdom of God. Yay. <laughs> Do you understand this? This is like, this isn't a big deal. This is the big deal. And we need to understand that, okay? So what's Jesus really doing? He's restoring everything Adam lost. It's the ministry of restoration. I said it yesterday, I'll say it again today. If you were to sum up the ministry of Jesus Christ in one word, it would be restoration. He came to restore what Adam lost. That we gotta stay focused on, okay? So the best thing for me to do, if I can understand that Jesus came to restore what Adam lost, maybe I need to find out what Adam lost. Make sense? Sure. If it's mine, I ought to know what it is. That's a big deal. Do you ever go up in your attic or down in your basement and there's all these boxes and you can't remember what's in them? But they're yours. <laughs> Does it ever get to you like, I ought to look through that and find out what's mine? <laughs> you know? Yeah. My, my mother-in-law passed away a couple weeks back and we were out there and uh, I walked out to the shed. They have a big shed in the backyard and I opened up the shed doors and closed them really, really fast. <laughs> I went, oh, Jesus. <laughs> so you're sorting through all the stuff, trying to figure out what to do with it. Make sense? Because you don't even know what's in the boxes. Do you understand for a whole lot of us, we're still sorting through the boxes trying to figure out what's really ours. I hope that makes sense to you because it speaks volumes to me. But here's the deal. If I don't open the box, I'll never know what's inside. If I don't look for it, I'll never find it. You got a purpose in your heart, man. If it's mine, do I want it? I'm thinking if God has it, why wouldn't I want it? If God has it and it's for me, why wouldn't I want it? So there's a purpose in that, okay? So here's the deal, okay? Because Jesus came to restore what Adam lost. It's all 1 Corinthians 15. We might get to that later on. But see, what happened is we got caught up in religion. And that's what happened. Man got caught up in religion. You know that. But religion is man's attempt to get to God where relationship is God's attempt to get to man. So we began to get this shift in this a few years back. And I think that's a big deal. We, I really believe that it's not just the Pentecostals and the Charismatics. I'm thinking all over the planet, people are starting to understand this whole concept of a relationship. There's still some places that are freaked out by some things. And I know that's true. I love, well, let me go further. I, God has a plan. So let me tell you what God's plan is so we can follow. You can't follow God's plan if you don't know what God's plan is. But it seems to me that God's plan would be, first thing he wants to do is establish a family of spirit sons, not servants. How many know the Bible says I'm not a servant, I'm a son? We'll look at that in Galatians 4 in a little bit. I'm not a servant, I'm a son. So he's going to establish a family of spirit sons. He's going to establish a kingdom, not a religious organization. You understand? On the front of the building, you know, if you come in, you can't miss it. It's a kingdom-minded church. Because I realize God's not trying to... God's not trying to build a church. You're the church. He's trying to reestablish his kingdom. 
Do you understand that's what's really going on? It's reestablishing the kingdom. That's what Jesus came for. So that's a big deal. Okay? Establish the kingdom. And guess what he's doing? He's trying to establish the kingdom of kings. Oh, I'm going to talk to you about being kings. Remember I talked about the dominion mandate? What was it? Rulership, not ownership. Kings rule. Not servants. I'm not a servant. I'm a son. Okay? You all right with that? We're not. So, so then he wants to extend his government to the earth and influence that from heaven through mankind. That's a, that's a big deal. So we're looking at a lot of stuff, okay? When man falls, everything got messed up. Would you agree to that? Everything got messed up. God's plans got foiled, okay? And I, I don't even say foiled. I, I guess it got messed up and there has to come a plan. So there's a curse pronounced in Genesis 3. Jesus is going to come and he's going to give his life's blood. He's not just going to die. He has to be crucified, okay? Cursed is every man that hangs upon a tree. You understand that Jesus had to be crucified. Did you guys talk about that at all in class? Had to be crucified. Couldn't have been stoned. Couldn't have been thrown over a cliff. Couldn't have been run over by a truck because they didn't have trucks. <laughs> Never mind. Okay, here's the deal. Had to be crucified because cursed is everyone that hangs upon a tree. He becomes a curse for us to remove the curse from us. That's a big deal. That's a major thing. So I look at all this stuff and I realize this, okay? Galatians chapter 4, okay? I preached Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5, I think 52 weeks, last, about three years ago. It was the text scripture every Sunday for a year. And the reason was because I was trying to get it and figured if I was trying to get it, I'd like to get everybody else to get it too, okay? So in Galatians 4, it's verses 4 and 5, he says, but when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his son. When the fullness of the time was come, when the time was right, did you ever wonder why God waited so long? I mean, does that mess with your head like it does mine? How many years from Adam to, uh, from Adam to Christ? Does anybody know? Anybody got an idea? Got a room full of Bible scholars? How many? About 4,000. The earth is 6,000 years old. Does anybody know that? If you study the genealogy through the Bible and where we're at today, the earth itself is about 6,000 years old. Now, I know that if there's scientists that are watching this on the internet, they're like, it's millions of years old. I don't believe that. You can believe that if you want, but in the words of David Hogan, you're wrong. Okay. Okay. I love how his little head does that. Okay. But the idea behind it is if we can study the genealogies and we can find the timeline, you're going to find the earth itself is about 6,000 years old. So from the time Adam fell in the garden until Jesus is born, there's about 4,000 years. I don't know what you think, but I think that's a long time. And this scripture tells me when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his son. I can get into this and maybe, I'm not real sure what the schedule even looks like next week, but the next time I come back, because I got, I got some things tomorrow, we'll talk about the threshold covenant tomorrow, it'll be amazing. But in the process of that, what I want to talk to you about today is this. He says, when the fullness of the time was come, Rome became the model. Do y'all know this at all? Has anybody ever studied this? Rome becomes the model for the world to see. Watch this. I'm going to try to help you understand this the best I can. I'm going to give you the Reader's Digest version. Maybe we'll get into this a whole lot deeper later on. But you understand that at the time Jesus came, who was the world power? Rome. How much of the world did they rule? Pretty much all of it. Okay? And how did they do that? Okay? Let's say that over here is a colony that Rome wants to take over. You know what they did? They didn't kill everybody there and send a bunch of Romans in. You know what they did? 
They had their power surround the place, and then they sent Romans in to live among them and teach them the Roman ways and colonize the place and bring it in as part of, their, as part of, the, as part of what they're dominating. And they became a part of Rome. Do you all follow what I just said? So now they would set up ambassadors in that colony who would now report back to the Roman authorities. And what happened? It became part of Rome. Then they went over here because here's another colony. And they got into that and they infiltrated the colony, surrounded it by their power. And then they overtook it. And they overtook it by coming in, dwelling among them, teaching them the Roman ways and showing them that. And they became part of Rome. They dominated the world that way. When the fullness of the time was come, when we had a model on the earth, the kingdom of God was to come. God's plan from the very beginning in Genesis was what? There's some pretty powerful words right here. Watch what God tells Adam in Genesis 1. Remember that we read 26? Let us make man in our own image after our own likeness. Let him have dominion over the fish of the sea, fowls of the air, over all the creeps on the earth. Never mind. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> We'll just leave that alone, <laughs> okay? But, but, but read it, if you read it, over every creeping thing. And, 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 then, and then he says this. He says, be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. You know what the next words were? And subdue it. I find that an interesting word. Subdue it. <laughs> subdue it. That's just like, because we talked about that. And, and I'm trying to figure out why did God tell Adam and Eve to subdue I, I, who talked about Adam and Eve being as one and then cut in two? Kim did, right? I lost her. She's over here somewhere. You moved. You were over there. <laughs> Y'all do that a lot around here. <laughs> okay, okay. But watch this because I think it's interesting. In Genesis 1, if there's only Adam, how could he tell Adam to be fruitful and multiply? So that challenged me. I didn't think about that until last night. I thought, he says, be fruitful and multiply. Replenish the earth. Adam couldn't have done that alone. So Eve had to be present at that speech somewhere, or at least present in God's mind, maybe. Maybe he was just present in God. She was present in the mind of God. Those are things that make, remember I told you I live with more questions than answers? So yesterday, while I'm teaching you, I don't know if you know this, but while I'm teaching you, I'm getting answers going, oh, that was good. Okay, <laughs> but, but in the same time, it raises questions just like that. Be fruitful, multiply, replenish the earth, and then subdue it, right? And he says subdue it. Subdue it means to take it over. Do you understand? To take over. So God is calling us today, if we're being restored to the place of Adam, what's he saying? There's a counterfeit kingdom of darkness that has come in, but now you should be fruitful, bearing spiritual children, right? And come, and now what? Replenish the earth, what? With people like Jesus, because we're called to look like him. And what are we supposed to do? Subdue the earth. Do you understand? Be fruitful, multiply, replenish the earth, and subdue it. The kingdom of Rome was the model that subdued the earth. And this is how they did. They came in and they colonized colony after colony, place after place, to begin to look just like Rome. Do you understand? What he was saying was, you and I should be subduing the earth, continuing to replenish the earth with children that look like Jesus. So what are we doing? We're pulling them out of darkness and into his marvelous light. First Peter chapter 2. You all right? Pulling them out of darkness into light, making them look like Jesus. And now what? We come in and we take over. That's a good word right there. I kind of like it. 
makes me go, hmm, that's cool. Because Rome was the model. When it says when the fullness of the time was come, there's finally a model for the church to look at and say, this is what we're called to do. Because everybody in the world knew what the model looked like. Isn't that cool? So when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his son made of a woman, made after the law to redeem them that were, that were, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. Do you understand what that means? That's a big deal to me. It's all about redemption, to redeem them that were under the law. It's redemption, and redemption is a big deal. Redemption means I'm standing with Adam in the midst of the garden, but I never ate the fruit. I'm redeemed. I'm brought back to my original value. God's doing something amazing, okay? This is the Message Bible, but when the time arrived that was set by God the Father, God sent His Son, born among us of a woman, born under the conditions of the law, that He might redeem those of us who have been kidnapped by the law. We were kidnapped, taken by wrong force, deceived by a deceiver. Who got saved and gives hand to the list of rules? Come on. Come on. Some of you got saved and got handed. I got handed a big list. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, thanks. Good word. You understand what she said? She said, I'm still trying to get rid of it. <laughs> Why? Because it's so ingrained in you. You've been given the list, and here's what you've got to do, and here's what you can't do, and here's where you can go, and here's where you can't go, and this is what you're supposed to do, and this is what you're not supposed to do, and how would you dare wear that to church? And oh, my goodness, and you're in public with those clothes on. Oh, my gosh. And all kinds of things. It was absolutely crazy. Do you know, and I've said some of this, and some of you know some of this, but when Pastor Lori and I got married, our, we, were under very, we were under legalistic conditions, and I'm not saying that in a bad way. We got saved. I got saved in an amazing church with an amazing bunch of people who really taught me a lot about Jesus. I thank God for my roots. But there were some restrictions that were unbiblical. You all follow what I say? You know, and I've said this with some of the church, but when we got, when we got, when we got married, we didn't even wear rings. We, we didn't exchange rings. We exchanged Bibles because jewelry was a sin. Anybody know Pastor Lori? She is making up for lost time now. <laughs> I promise you. There were some lost years, but we have made up and then some. <laughs> we are good to go, man. I'm telling you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We took, when Nicole, my daughter, she's now 30, 31, somewhere right around there. And we took her to Rainbow Bright and the Star Stealers, the first movie my wife ever saw. Because she wasn't allowed in a movie theater. Because that was sin. I took her to the prom. That was the first dance we ever been to. You know why? Because we didn't go to dances. I said, why don't you go to dances? And the preacher said, because young girls get pregnant at dances. I said, girls don't get pregnant dancing. They get pregnant when they stop dancing. Never mind. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but but, but there's, there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. And there were things like that that were just twisted and people got their, it's, and it was under the law. We were still under the law. Even though we got saved by grace, there was laws everywhere. And that wasn't so not the will of God, but it's deception. Satan's trying to blind us. We're kidnapped by the law. Y'all follow what I'm saying? So, so it's a good word. Okay. It's huge. So he says redemption brought back to my original value, the adoption of sons. You understand that we've quoted John 3, 16, 
so much in the body of Christ, I'm not even sure we fully understand it. Sometimes the familiarity with the scripture causes us to lose its impact. But God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. He gave one son to gain many sons and daughters. You see, if we looked at the first law of the Bible, the first biblical law is every seed reproduces after its own kind. God gave his son to reproduce after his own kind. He was the seed. Jesus said, except a corn of wheat fall to the ground and die, it'll buy it alone. But if it dies, it's going to bring forth fruit. Do you understand what he was saying? He was the corn of wheat. He was the seed. God gave one son to gain many sons and daughters. He's the original sowing and reaping. Do you understand that? So it's a big deal. And here's where it goes. And this is, this is, this is, what, this is what I'm looking at today. God was out to gain the family that he set out to have in Genesis. He was out to gain the family that he set out to have in Genesis. Let me talk to you real straight with this. This is powerful, but a few years back, the Lord really dropped this in my heart. If you were to follow from the Garden of Gethsemane through Calvary, how many times did Jesus bleed? If I'm right, it was seven. His blood was shed seven times from seven different places. We don't have a gospel account of the first time. But the psalmist David said the first thing they would have did was pluck out his beard. It's in the psalms they pulled the beard out of his face. If they'd have plucked the beard from his face, I promise you he'd have bled. And I don't know if you have any idea how painful that must be. But it has to be horribly painful. When they pulled the beard from his face, that blood began to flow. The Lord spoke to my heart and said, every time I bled, it was to restore you. To restore you to Adam. I want you to go with me to the fall of man, only in your mind. You don't, we won't switch back and forth in Scripture. But I'm going to walk you through this because it's a very powerful revelation that the Lord helped me with a long time back. When he plucked the beard from his face and that blood began to flow, the Lord took, takes us back to the Garden of, e, of, of Eden. Do you remember that when man fell, what was the first thing he did? He went and hid his face from God. But now the blood would flow from the face of Jesus Christ. Why? So that you and I could turn our faces toward him once again. And we could look upon him. That we could look upon his grace. It's amazing to me that our face, we can, we can have a face-to-face encounter with God. That's amazing. That couldn't happen without the blood. Remember this. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission for your sin. But Jesus would shed his blood seven times. Seven is a number of completion. It's a number of perfection. You know what he did? He gave perfect blood, and he gave it perfectly. He gave his complete blood, and he gave it completely. Do you understand what I'm telling you? When he shed blood from his face, it was so that you and I could have a face-to-face encounter with God. And that's a major thing. The next time that his blood would flow, if you remember, they arrest him. And they actually take him out and they start to beat upon his back. Most of you know this, that that back was beaten over and over again. If you saw Mel Gibson's movie, it's probably close. It may have been worse than that. The Bible says that he was marred more than any other man to a place where he was even unrecognizable. Don't forget that he took a beating, the beating of a lifetime for you and I. And they beat upon his back. If you would remember back in the Garden of Eden, man was in a perfect environment. But now the burden of sickness and disease would come upon the back of man. He would have to carry 
the burden of sickness and disease. It's placed upon him. And at that point, I think about Jesus taking stripes upon his back. Why? So that the burden would be lifted off of our back. I want you to understand something. Here is a major thing that the Lord spoke to my heart about. If we can understand this, I believe that divine healing... And I want you to hear this, divine healing, awesome thing. But I believe it's to show the power of God to a lost and dying and hurting world. I believe that divine healing is to show the world the kingdom of God has come. I believe that divine healing is a sign to the unbeliever that Jesus is alive and well. But divine health is the inheritance of the saints. Do you understand what I just said? Divine healing, sign to the unbeliever, the power of God. Divine health is my inheritance. I believe that I can live and walk in divine health. I believe I don't ever have to be sick. You know why I believe that? Because I started believing it 12 years ago. Haven't been sick a day since. In the the beginning of the year, we went on a fast, a a Daniel fast, and I had never been on one. And we were on a Daniel fast, and I really changed my diet and a whole bunch of things. I fasted three days. I fasted a lot of 40-hour fasts. But I hadn't fasted like this, and we did a Daniel fast. And about halfway through it, I got sick as a dog. I started throwing up. I'm telling you, it was awful. And I'm thinking, where in the world did this come from? Because I don't even believe in this. I'm I'm, I'm, I'm sitting... uh, all right, let's get graphic. I'm kneeling in front of this round porcelain thing in my house, okay, and I'm going, Lord, I believe in divine health. <laughs> I rebuke your strain. Because <laughs> I'm thinking this can't be. I haven't done this forever. I thought I had a flu or something, and I was really frustrated because I don't even believe in having the flu. And all of a sudden, and it stayed with me, and I'm, I'm, I'll tell you the truth is it, it kind of messed me up for a few days. And one of the girls who's really into health and a whole bunch of issues and stuff, she had found out about that, and she said, how you doing with your detox? Yeah. <laughs> and, and I said, well, I don't know. I said, I've got the flu or something. She said, you don't have the flu. Your body's detoxing. Anybody that has a major change, and I, I won't go into all that, but she began to explain to me all the physical ramifications, and she said, I bet you were doing this, this, and this. I'm like, yeah. And she said, you're detoxing. You're not sick. I said, praise God. Hallelujah. Okay. <laughs> I was never so happy about barfing in my life. Okay. <laughs> okay. But, but here's the deal. I believe that Jesus took those stripes on his back for divine healing for the unbeliever, but divine health for the child of God. That's a good word right there. See, watch, I got to go here because I opened this up. Remember that I said he had to be crucified because cursed is everyone that hangs upon a tree, right? Now here's the deal. If sickness and disease are part of the curse and he died to remove the curse, then I guess sickness and disease don't have a right to touch my life. Do you understand what I just said? Devil tries to put that junk on him, man. You've got a right to rebuke it. I'm not receiving this in Jesus' name. Divine health is what Jesus paid for. I got news for you. If that's what he paid for, that's what you ought to get. I think it's a big deal. A few months back, Joe March was with me and we were talking and he, and he said this. And I thought it was a really, really powerful thing. But he said, if I went to Lowe's and bought you a brand new refrigerator, handed you the receipt and said, it's yours, go get it. And you went down there, and I bought you a really nice double-door refrigerator with the thing on the bottom and water in the door. And they tried to hand you a little small one-door, no-nothing refrigerator. Would you take it? No. It's not what he paid for. Oh, that's powerful. That's powerful. Come on. You understand that? You understand what I just said? That's powerful. That's po- I'm, I'm gonna, I want to see the manager. 
Come on. That's a good word right there. I just made that up. Okay, come on. But I want to see the manager. Why? Because I want what was paid for. If he paid for that, I want what was paid for. I have a right to go after what was paid for for me. He paid for that for me. It's mine. I want my refrigerator. I want it with food. (laughs) Come on. And I want coffee in the door. (laughs) Krispy Kreme's inside. Never mind. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. So much for the Daniel fast. Okay. (laughs) Follow this. Y'all understand what I'm saying? So the first time he sheds his blood, it's from his face so that we can face God. The second time he sheds his blood, it's from his back to lift the burden of sickness and disease off of your back. Do you got it? Then they would place a crown of thorns upon his head and that blood would flow. I want you to picture the blood flowing. Anybody ever have a head wound? It's amazing to me. I've had a few. But I can tell you something. In Palestine, and when Jesus was born, it would have been incredibly hot. So sweat and blood are now flowing down his brow. And the blood flows from a crown of thorns placed upon his head. He would take a crown of thorns upon his head. Here's why. Because Adam, in the midst of the garden, was crowned with dominion and authority. But when he fell into sin, the crown fell. Now Jesus would take the crown upon his head that you and I might wear the crown once again. You're crowned with dominion. You're crowned with authority. You've got to understand something. Everything that God made, he said, was good. He says he makes light and dark and says it's good. He separates them. He makes the land and the sea and separates them. It's good. He makes the, 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 the fowls of the air and it's good. And then the, the, all the animals and it's good. And all the plants and trees and it's good. And then what's he say? Make man and it's very good. You're crowned with dominion and authority. Adam fell and dropped the crown, but now Jesus came to restore the crown upon your head. The crown of dominion, the crown of authority. That's powerful to me. They take him out to Golgotha's hill and they stretch him out on a cross and they pierce his hands with incredibly large nails. And they go through and it's actually at the wrists and I won't even get into all that, but I want you to understand something. When they pierce him here and they pierce him here, blood begins to flow. These are main arteries. There's blood flowing now and there's a lot of blood and it's coming down his arms and it's coming down him. And I got to tell you something and I look at that and I think, man, they did that. They pierced it. And, and the scripture says they pierced his hands and his feet. He said, Lord, they pierced your hands. And you know what? When Adam fell, He no longer could lift up holy hands because his hands were no longer holy. But Jesus would take the nails in his hands that you and I might lift up holy hands, magnify his name, and worship him. Who shall ascend to the hill of the Lord but he that has what? Clean hands and a pure heart. I got clean hands and a pure heart because Jesus shed his blood for me. You see, when I look at this garden, I look at that garden, there's incredible parallels. Now they would pierce his feet. You got to understand those nails would pierce his feet on that cross. That's an amazing thought to me. I'm not even sure how all that works out. I don't, I don't full, have a full comprehension or understanding of the, of the magnitude of the pain and everything that might have went on, but I know they pierced his feet. And I thought about piercing his feet. His feet were pierced. And I went back to the Garden of Eden. And you know what it says? It says God came down with Adam in the midst of the garden in the cool of the day and they walked together. 
Oh, they walked together in the midst of the garden in the cool of the day. But then what happened? Sin came and now God and man are separated. Man can't walk with God now because they've been separated by sin. David said your sin has separated between you and your God. But what happened was Jesus would take the nails in his feet. Why? So that you and I could walk with him. That we could walk with him and understand what the songwriter said when she said, and he walks with me and he talks with me and he tells me I am his own. Oh, that's a big deal to me. So they plucked the hair from his beard. They tore open his back. They crowned his head and his hands and his feet. And I think about the blood that Jesus shed. He gave it all. But there's one more place. You see, he had blood left in him. And he came to give it all. He came to give every bit. And you got to understand, he is suspended between heaven and earth. And he cries out and he says, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. And he gave up the ghost and he died. But a Roman soldier comes by who's commanded to break his legs. But he's already gone. And in that process, there's still blood left. So in an impulsive move, he takes a sword and he pierces the side of my Savior. And when he pierced the side of my Savior, what's the Bible say? Blood and water would gush out. I want to take you back to the Garden of Eden. Because God, in an amazing move, places Adam to sleep, opens up Adam's side, takes out a rib. For what? A bride. For a bride for Adam. Oh, you've got to understand something. According to Ephesians chapter 5, he purchases his bride with his blood. He purchased the church with his own precious blood. That blood that would pour out was to purchase a bride. Why? So that God could have the family that he set out to create in Genesis. Oh, it's a big deal. He gives his life blood for every one of us. You've got to understand something. Every time he shed that blood, it was with significance. It was with purpose. It was with design. It was the plan, the will, and the purpose of heaven that he was going to shed his blood just for you and I to restore us. This is what I'm reading when it says he came to redeem us, to redeem them that were under the law, to bring us back to our created value, to have the family that he set out to create in Genesis. It was God's perfect plan. Man messed it up, but Jesus came the man for all men to bring us back to this place that's what I read in Galatians 4 there's a place where he brings us back I'm redeemed you see the old songwriter said redeemed how I love to proclaim it redeemed by the blood of the lamb redeemed I'm so happy in Jesus his child forever I am you got to understand something. He paid an incredible price. Don't you dare sell short and come home with a one-door refrigerator with no water. <laughs> Do you understand that? Boy, that's a visual picture in my head. Oh, you've been given the deluxe model. <laughs> that's a big deal. I love it. So I get excited about this. Can you tell? God wasn't trying to get religious people. Come on. He was restoring us to be personal representatives. Doesn't the Bible call us ambassadors? That's a neat word. What is that? 2 Corinthians 5 and 1 Corinthians 5 and 20. Let's go. 1 Corinthians 5. Maybe 2 Corinthians 5. It's one of them. If it ain't first, it's second. 
Second. <laughs> it is second. Second Corinthians 5. Second Corinthians 5.20. It's a big deal. I want you to see this. If Jesus paid that kind of price and shed that kind of blood for you and I, then there's something we ought to be considering. He thinks you're pretty valuable. You know what I find amazing? Sometimes I look up toward heaven and I say, God, I, you trust us. <laughs> wow, that's amazing. Isn't that amazing? I'm not even sure I trust us. <laughs> but he does. I think that's amazing. God entrusted us with this whole plan. And then called us ambassadors and gave us a position and told us, go and do this. This is amazing to me. So watch this. If I can read this, and I, I think it's pretty cool. Five and 20. Watch this. This is a pretty neat word. Okay. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God did beseech you by us. Do you understand what he just said? We're his personal representatives. Like we stand in his authority, in his place. That's pretty cool. Jesus said, as the Father sent me, so I send you. You're my ambassador. You're ambassadors. What the writer here just said is every time we talk to you, it's just like God's talking to you. We beseech you in Christ's stead. Do you get it? Like like Jesus isn't here in person, but he's here in person. (laughs) Do you get it? Like, that's a big deal. That's really, that's really, really strong in my heart today. The, the fact of the matter is, is that we're his personal representatives on the earth. We're his ambassadors. That's a, that's a big word. So when I think about this word ambassadors, th- this speaks volumes to me. He says, we pray you in Christ that be reconciled to God. Now, that's strong because the word ambassadors is not a religious term. It's a governmental term. So it must have something to do with God's government on the earth. Do you understand what I just said? Let your kingdom come, your will be done. Don't miss that. Let your kingdom come. It's a kingdom term. It's a governmental term. Okay? It's not religious. It's governmental. What's that actually mean? Ambassadors are neat. Here's what's what's really cool about ambassadors. Ambassadors are appointed by the king. They're not voted in. Yay. Do you understand that? It's not, we're not voted in. We're appointed by the king. An ambassador is appointed by the king. He's not, he's not a, a voted in representative of the people. He's appointed by the king to represent the king and his kingdom. Ambassador doesn't go with their own idea and their own plan. They are representing the king and his kingdom. You understand that? So it's all about what goes on there. They're committed to the king's interests, not their own. That's probably one of the biggest challenges in the body of Christ. We spend a lot of time trying to build our own kingdoms. Here's a big deal. Um, It's been a few years back now again. I'm praying. And we were were, actually, we were moving into the new building on this side. It would have been the year 2000. December of 2002, we moved into the building over here. So I think it was just a little bit before that. And you got to understand when you started out in a plaza and you thought you were going to spend your life in a plaza when you're building that building, it's like, oh my gosh, how are we ever going to fill it? And that's where my heart was. And I'm like, God, you're going to have to do something here because we got to get this thing full. We got to get this thing full. And I'm trying to figure out ways to build up the church. And this is when the Lord really spoke to my heart about all this stuff we're talking about right now. He said, you worry about building the kingdom, I'll build the church. Do you understand that? And he took me to Matthew. Peter's speaking. And watch this. If you follow this, it's, I believe it's Matthew 13. Probably starts about verse 16. 
Jesus comes and he speaks to the disciples. You know what he says? He says, who do men say that I the son of man am? Do you know that he could have cared less about the answer? That was a rhetorical question. Who do men say that I the son of man am? It was a leading. That's all he was doing was leading in. Because he really didn't care about that answer. It wasn't like, hey, what's the popular opinion about me? Do you got it? How many of us worry more about the popular opinion about us? That wasn't his concern. It was a leading question. So they start answering him. Well, some say you're John the Baptist, and others say you're Elijah, and some say you might even be Jeremiah, and we're not real sure. And the, the, there's a lot of discussion out there about it. And Jesus said, doesn't even matter. Here's what really matters. Who do you say that I am? Do you understand that? Yeah. Remember what Peter said? Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's an amazing term. Thou art the Christ, because it's a messianic term. Every Jew knew when he said thou art the Christ, he meant you're the Messiah, the anointed one of God. You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus looks at Peter and he says something that's absolutely phenomenal and pretty amazing, and I'm still not sure that in the body of Christ we've grabbed this yet. But he said, you're right, Peter. And flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you. My Father revealed it to you. And I say unto you that your name is now Peter. And upon this rock I'll build my church. And the gates of hell won't prevail against it. Now there's a couple of things that become real, real important. Upon this rock, Peter, Peter, the word Peter means a stone, or we could say a rock, but I think, it, I think there's actually, there's, there's, there's something in his terminology that he actually calls Peter a stone and says upon this rock. I believe that rock was a, a divine revelation and a mutual understanding between God and man. And that God was speaking to man now. Because Peter got this revelation, not because Jesus told him, but because the Father showed him. And that's what he was saying is God will speak to you. There's a place now where the hearts of men are exploding and God is coming in. And in the process of that, what he's saying now is that upon this rock, the divine revelation and mutual understanding between God and man, I will build my church. You don't have to. I will. I will build my church. And then he says something I think is so powerful, the gates of hell won't prevail against it. And here we've been for the last 2,000 years defending ourselves from Satan's attacks. And I've watched a lot of war movies and I've watched a lot of cowboy movies and nobody ever attacked anybody with a gate. I never saw like this troop running up there with a gate going to plow everybody over. <laughs> I kind of found that what happens is the, 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 the offense comes against the gate and tears down the gate and keeps rolling. And he said the gates of hell won't be able to stop the church. But we've spent more time on the defense than we have on the offense. And you know that's true. But I believe it's changing. I believe it's changing. I believe there's a mindset in the body of Christ that is awakening the bride that's saying it is time for us to take back everything the devil stole and then some. It's a time for the church to really rise up and awaken. And I see that happening. I think it's pretty amazing actually because as, as I study this out, there's something really, really strong to this in my heart that says there's a time for us to rise up and actually be the people God called us to be. So I start reading this and I think about, I, I think about we're committed to the king's interest, not our, our own. We're not trying to build our kingdom, we're trying to build his kingdom. If we build his kingdom, he'll build the church. If we, if we, if we, rep, if, if we stay, and I use the phrase kingdom-minded, it's a, it's, a, it's a phrase that's been in my heart for several years, but if I use the phrase kingdom-minded, then I gotta know I'm covered by all the resources of that kingdom. 
That means all the resources of the kingdom are at the ambassador's disposal. We talked a little bit about this yesterday. So what's that mean? That means I have access to everything that's in the kingdom, okay? I'm covered by the kingdom I represent. I'm covered by the resources I represent. My goal is to influence the territory for that kingdom. That's what Jesus was saying. That's the understanding that we're trying to grab a hold of. So here's the deal. And this is what I guess I'd ask us. I'll say it this way. Because I think a lot of us did it for years. Did you invite people to church? Or do you invite them to Christ? You're out on the street and somebody's really going through a rough time. Here's the real easy thing to do. You should come to my church. You should come to my church. Why don't you come to church with me? Maybe a better thing might be to do is take their hand and say, come on, let's pray and let's get Jesus in your heart. Let's pray and get Jesus in your heart because I think that's going to change everything. Do you understand what I just said? But we're not used to leading people to Christ in public. But we're real good at inviting people to church. So what are we really trying to do? Build the kingdom or build the church? Yeah. And that's, that's, a, that's a strong like, hmm. I don't want you to answer this. I want you to think about this. In this room, you're here because your mindset's different than a lot of people because you just gave up your whole summer. 13 weeks to come all summer long to a class that you feel is vital and important in your life, okay? But you don't feel like that's a sacrifice. You feel like it's a privilege, and you're feeling pretty good about that, saying, oh, my gosh, this is amazing. I'm so glad we're able to do that. So your mindset is obviously different than the average Christian. I'm okay to say that. That's fair. And even the people that are watching by Internet, do you realize that they're coming home after they've worked all day trying to watch three hours of a... a, a teachings and try to get as much of that. I, I so applaud what they're doing. I think it's an amazing thing. In the process of that, if you're, if you're here in the classroom or you're watching by internet, your mindset's different than the average Christian. But I would ask you this question. How many of us in the room have led more than 10 people to Christ on a one-on-one basis and the hands may be few that go up? We're not used to leading people to the kingdom, but we have no problem inviting people to church. Do you understand what I just said? I honestly believe if we get focused on building the kingdom, he'll build the church. Our focus needs to shift. We need people into the kingdom. And I realize, and watch this, because you know where my heart's at. It's not about getting people to pray a prayer. It's about getting people to change their heart. Once their heart changes, they need to find a church. And I understand that. See, for years, I had to go to church. For years, most of you know, and I shared a little bit of this, but I was raised Roman Catholic, altar boy, all those kind of things for years, and commentator to 11 o'clock, mass, and all that kind of stuff. But I didn't want to go to church. I had a drug problem. My mom drugged me to church by my ear. <laughs> and she drugged me next week by my ear. I kept getting drugged to church all the time. I was drugged to church everywhere. It was a drug problem. But what happened was I, I didn't go because I wanted to. I, I went because I had to. But then some things changed, and all of a sudden, then I wanted to. I was, I was going to church with my mom in the morning because I had to, but I was going to church with Lori in the evening because I wanted to. And at first, I'll be real transparent, first, I wanted to because it was all about Lori. But after a while, it wasn't about Lori anymore. It was all about Jesus. See, I, I, I've, I have people that question, say, well, some of these guys, I think they're just coming to church because you've got a bunch of pretty girls at your church. I don't know about them guys. I'm thinking, thank God they're there. <laughs> why I was there. Shh, quiet, don't tell. Okay. <laughs> but, but in the process, it, it worked. It, I don't care. Get them influenced. Get them into that spirit. Get them into that anointing. Let God touch their lives. I think it's amazing. But here's the deal. Something shifted in my heart. I'm telling you, man, when we get people's hearts shifted, it's going to make all the difference in the world. It's really about shifting hearts. 
I want you to think about the price Jesus paid and understand. We talked about the blood that he shed. And I want you to get a visual of all that that we just spoke about and realize that there is nobody that you will encounter today that he didn't pay that price for. There's nobody that you'll encounter. I don't care how mean they are. I don't care how bad they've been. I don't care how rough they treat you or how wrong they are. Jesus loves them and paid an incredible price for every one of them. Pastor Don, that was an incredible teach about the blood, but um, you had said there were seven times that the blood was shed, and, and I think you covered six. And I heard this teaching before. I think it was in the Garden of Gethsemane, and the, the sweat became his blood. Was that one that maybe you missed? I skipped the first one. Thanks. Yeah. Did I, I didn't cover that, did I? Back to the garden. <laughs> to the garden, Robin. Never mind. Okay. <laughs> okay. In the process, watch this. And thank you for sharing that. In the garden, do you remember the first time that that blood would flow? He is in the garden. In the pictures that you and I would see, he's kneeling at a big rock. How many of you know that's that picture? It's called the Garden of Gethsemane. In that same time, what we find is that as he's kneeling there, he is praying so fervently that his sweat became as great drops of blood. The Bible says that. And there's a, there's, a, there's a term for that, and it's hemo something or another, because hemo means blood, and I can't tell you all the term, but I can tell you that there is a medical term for that, and it actually, where blood actually, because of the intensity of that prayer and the intensity of that moment, that blood began to issue out of the pores of his skin, and his sweat became as great drops of blood. What was he praying? Father, I pray if there's any other way, let it happen. Take this cup from me. Nevertheless, what's he say? Not my will, but your will be done. Do you understand what was happening there? You've got to go back to the Garden of Eden and you'll find it right there. Because when Adam and Eve took of the fruit that they weren't allowed, you know what they were saying? Not your will, my will be done. But now Jesus would sweat blood and those precious drops of blood would flow one more time. Why? To turn man's will back to God. You see, I'm no longer living for me. It's not even about my will. It's about the will of God in my life. It's not my life to live. I gave it to him. I'm a dead man and a dead man has no rights. The only right in my life is the right to be like Jesus. And every other right I have abdicated because no longer do I want my will accomplished. I want his will. That's a challenging statement, isn't it? When I was a young man, I was about 20 years old, probably right around 20 years old, when I got my, my, my first lay minister's license. In the organization I was a part of, we did it for the first thing you, you signed up and you went through a bunch of classes, little, uh, um, what do you call it, correspondence school stuff and some different things like that. And you sent papers in and they sent papers back. And then you, once you completed enough of those courses, you were eligible for what they called a lay minister's license. And in the late, so they sent me a certi- uh, uh, an application for the lay minister's license, your name, your address, your age, and all kind of things like that. And, and it's all on there. And then it comes down here and there's a question. And it said, it had all kind of questions. Some pretty interesting questions. And one of the questions was, are you free from self-will? And I knew what they wanted. And I said, Sure. <laughs> Today, I would probably struggle a lot more with that. I'd love to tell you, as the senior pastor of a pretty incredible church, I'm free from self-will. Except I still struggle with that answer. 
I could almost tell you I'm becoming free from self-will. I honestly believe it's more of a process than a moment. I'd like to tell you that I'm a dead man because every one of us is called to be a dead man and we all know that, right? The truth is you wouldn't believe how many times I've died and resurrected. <laughs> and, and I gotta tell you, my dead moments are, 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 are lasting longer and my resurrections are more infrequent than they've ever been. But I can tell you something, that's a really challenging question. If I was to ask you, are you free from self-will? How are you gonna answer that? Because that's kind of challenging. Working on it. Who's ever sang that song as a young person? He's still working on me. <laughs> I could sing it, but then you'd understand why I preach and don't sing. <laughs> okay, okay. Here's the deal. He's working on us. I'm not completely free from self-will. I'd like to say I am. I'd like to say that's absolutely true. I'm not, there's none of me. But I don't believe I could honestly say that. One of the most challenging scriptures to me in the Bible is when Jesus looks up and says, I only do what I see the Father do. And I want to be just like him. But if you were to say, I only do what I see the Father do, I will pray for you, you big fat liar. Okay, <laughs> That's not true. I hope that you could say that. It would be my greatest desire to see disciples rising up and being able to say that and actually mean it from the deep of your heart. But the truth of the matter is, is there's places in our life where we're still challenged. And, and, and in that, what I'm saying is we're dying out to ourselves. We're becoming more and more like Jesus all the time. And that's got to be our goal. That's got to be our desire. I so, watch this. We sang this song. We talked about it yesterday. I want to be like Jesus. I want to look like Jesus. I want to love like Jesus. I want to walk like him. That, that, those are huge words to me. But the, that's, that's a prayer. That's a cry from my heart. I read this, and I think, man, we've got to develop this, this, this kingdom mentality, because that's the message of Jesus. It's what he says. If you read Matthew 4, it's amazing. He goes out into the wilderness, and he returned in the power of the Spirit. Isn't that an amazing thing? Do you understand that it's the same wilderness the disciples wandered, or the, the, the Israelites wandered for 40 years in? And they wandered for 40 years, and what happened to them? Do you know, the, does anybody have an idea how many Israelites left out of Egypt? Anybody have an idea, ballpark, anybody? Go ahead, just, just shout it out. What's that? Two million. The estimate is two million Israelites left out. They left out of Ramses, it was the treasure city. How do you know that? We have record of it. It's recorded. How do you know that? Remember that they gave them all the gold and all the silver? Come on, it's how they built a calf that they shouldn't have built. But they gave them their mirrors and they gave them gold and they gave them jewels and they gave them all kinds of stuff. So they're coming out. And I love it. David records it and says, the Lord brought them out with a high hand. Come on. They got all this stuff. You remember, they were slaves for 400 years. You know what that gold and jewels and all that was? Payment that they had been robbed of, they were now getting paid for as they came out of Egypt with all this stuff, come out of Ramses, the treasure said, there's two million of them. Do you know out of the original two million, those that were above 20 years old, how many of them crossed Jordan? Two. Joshua and Caleb. They were one in a million. That's a good word right there. I want you to think about that for just a minute. 
The same wilderness that Jesus goes into. Watch this. Here comes man murmuring, complaining, griping. We need water. We need manna again and blah, 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 blah. And they're, and, they're, and they're just whining and complaining and they're doing all kind of things. And all of a sudden now they're dying off left and right. Do you understand? There's 1,999,998 graves. Wonder if it's the battery. Try the wire. I'm going for the handheld. Where is it? I'm on. Don't mind. Keep coming. That was him. I'm going to give this to you, Randy. I'm going to take this. Do you understand? 1,999,000. Hang on a minute. I got it. 1,999,998 graves in the desert. I want you to think about that. Because if you can understand this, it's the same desert that Jesus went into. They went out in their own flesh, right? And in their murmuring and complaining. You got to understand something. Was God with them? Pillar of a cloud by day, pillar of fire by night. And they're out there in the middle of the desert. Now watch this. You would think if they got this pillar of a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night, you know why that was. You need to understand this. But the pillar of the cloud by day was because in that desert, it was incredibly hot during the day. And that cloud overshadowed the sun, so it gave him shade all day long. At night, in the winters, they got incredibly cold. What'd they have? Pillar of fire. Cloud by day, pillar of fire by night. Pretty amazing, amen? You got to catch this. This is really, really important. So God is really taking care of them. They have a visible sign that God is with them. I don't know if you even understand this or not, but there's a rock that followed them, gave them water every day. That's like amazing to me. Water gushed out of the rock. Do you know how much water it takes for two million people in the desert? Come on, and it keeps coming out of the rock that followed after them. And that rock was a symbolic Christ. It was a symbolism of Christ behind him. And I won't even get into all that, but it's, it's all in the New Testament. It speaks volumes about it. In the process of that, what's going on is as they're doing it, God is all over this. His fingerprints are all over everything that's going on around them. And what are they doing? Murmuring and complaining and fussing and moaning. And they're dying off left and right. What are you saying? Here we are. Maybe 3,000 years later. I'm not so sure it looks all that different. And I don't know if everybody understood what I just tried not to say. But we see God's fingerprints everywhere. Why are we not back to Matthew 13 that I read in the very beginning. And selling out completely with the purpose in mind. I've found the treasure. Sell out and go after this thing with everything in you. I know that right now you're sitting in this class. I'm probably preaching to the choir. But I've got to tell you something. Even the choir needs preached to you, son. God, stir up our hearts to the place where we understand what this thing about being sold out looks like. Because to me, this is the deal. Jesus is out in that desert. And he's in the same desert. Do you understand? Did the devil attack him? You better believe it. I don't know if everybody gets this, and I know it's break time, but let me cover this real quick if I can. You've got to understand, at the end of Matthew chapter 3, what just happened? Jesus is getting baptized. I love this, that he's getting baptized. And, and, uh, and, and I still struggle with the idea that he got baptized. Because baptism... <laughs> Tells me that I'm dying to myself and rising to Christ. And, and, and it was a, I understand that John the Baptist was preaching the baptism of what? 
Repentance from sin. But Jesus tells John, suffer to be so, for thus it fulfilleth all righteousness. The only thing I can get out of that is, let me be the example to everyone who's going to follow after me. Okay? So in that, he's saying, let me be the example to everyone that follows after me. There just seems to be, there's something that stirs in me that says there's got to be more to this, and I'm not sure what it is yet, but one day God will reveal it. But in the process of that, and this is what I'm thinking, he becomes the example for every one of us. When he comes up out of the water, remember, the heavens open. As far as I know, they never closed. That'll preach. The Holy Spirit descends like a dove and lights upon him, right? Mark's gospel says, and stayed there and remained. Okay, that's pretty cool. I'd like to talk about that a while. I think every step we take, we ought to take with the dove in mind. Oh, there's a thought. God speaks from heaven, says, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. How many know that's exactly what God said? This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. When he goes out into the desert, the same devil that was attacking all those Israelites is now attacking him in the same location. Come on, in the same location. And what's the first thing the devil says to him? If you really are the son of God, you've got to be hungry by now. Why don't you turn some stones to bread? And Jesus makes a remark here that I think is absolutely incredible. And I didn't understand it until a couple years ago. But watch this. Jesus says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And I thought what Jesus just said is, I don't need to turn these stones to bread. Because God's going to sustain me. What I found was that he was actually coming back against the devil for what the devil just said. If you really are the son of God, command the stones to be made bread. He said, I don't need to turn stones to bread to know who I am. My father just told me when I got baptized that I am his beloved son. You see, I got my identity and I don't get my identity from taking stones and turning them to bread. My identity comes because the father told me who I am. Some of you need to understand, the Father's already told you who you are. You're ambassadors. You're ambassadors of his kingdom. You're ambassadors. You represent another kingdom on the earth. You are here as God's representatives. You have rulership, not ownership, but rulership, and a dominion mandate that takes you places that nothing else can. God's called us to this place. When he said, man doesn't live by bread alone, he said, I don't need to turn stones to bread to know who I am. Don't you dare challenge me with that satanic if. He did it to the first Adam. He did it to the first Adam. See, God just told Jesus who he was. What did he do to the first Adam? Did God really say? Come on. Did God really say if you eat of this tree, you're going to die? Did God really say that? He's in the water, gets baptized, comes out. This is my beloved son. What he was doing was challenging what God said. I will promise you as a child of God, the devil will come along and challenge everything that you believe. Is that what they really mean? Is that what the Bible really says? Does that really work for you? Is it really real what they're preaching? Is it true what you're hearing? And he's got friends everywhere. And I'll tell you something, there's religious ones. They're the worst. Oh, I said that out loud on tape and everything. (laughs) Come on. Because you start stepping out by faith, you start believing God, and all of a sudden, everybody in the world is going to challenge you. Come on, the devil tries to put sickness on you, and you're going to walk out your healing, and your friends are telling you, you need to go to a doctor. I'm not telling you don't go to a doctor. I'm telling you, if God told you don't go to a doctor, don't go. But don't go, don't, don't go to try to prove something. You've got to hear from heaven. 
There's a lot of dead people that tried to prove something. <laughs> That'll preach. <laughs> you stand in your faith. You stand in your anointing. You stand in what you believe in. You're an ambassador from another world. God's called you to something higher and something more. There's purpose for you. Man, I feel this. This is so big in my heart right now. But you've got to understand something. That same devil that attacked all those Israelites. Come on. He was attacking Jesus in the same place. But Jesus stood the test. And you know what happened after the test? I love the end of the chapter because I think in, it comes back and says, And he returned in the power of the Spirit. If you read verse 1, it says he was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. The Spirit led him to the temptation, but brought him back in power. Oh, oh I don't know if that messes with your head like it does mine, but that's, oh, I love that. Because it says he returned into power of the Spirit. And when he returned into power of the Spirit, you know what he began to do? In verse 17 of that same chapter, here's what he did. He turned around and began preaching, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. We'll pick it up from there. Take a break. Come on back at 11, and we'll be ready to roll. Up again, because we got about an hour to cover two hours of stuff. <laughs> okay. Okay. I'll talk fast. You listen fast. We're going to be okay. Got a lot of folks still coming in, but there's something to developing a kingdom mentality. And it's shifting in the body of Christ right now. And it has to shift. It has to change. Here's why. Jesus didn't say the gospel of salvation will be preached to all the world. And then shall the end come. He said the gospel of the kingdom must be preached into all the world. And for years and years and years we didn't understand there was a difference. And I think now we're getting it. And that's. That's major. Like, that's a major deal. So there's a lot of stuff right now that we're looking at and trying to understand. But it's developing this. Remember that I said when he, when he leaves out in, in, in Matthew, he makes a really strong statement. He says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Change the way you think. I've come and I've brought my kingdom with me. And I invite you to be a part of that. That's an amazing invitation that we can come and be a part of his kingdom on the earth. So that's when I use this term ambassadorial roles. That's, that's a big deal to me because we're ambassadors of his kingdom, okay? We've preached a lot of stuff. For years, we preached the gospel of salvation. We preached the prosperity. We preached deliverance. We preached tongues. We, we preached an incredible amount of stuff. But he said, preach the gospel of the kingdom. And that, that's huge. That's an, it's a very inclusive term, but I'm going to tell you something, man. He says he's not coming back to the gospel of the kingdom is preached into all the world. We've preached a very excellent born-again message. I touched on that yesterday about the idea of the Nick at Night experience and what took place there because I think that's really strong. But the truth of the matter is we got a lot of people born again. They ran in. They prayed a prayer. They, they, they meant it. Their hearts turned. They, they, their name was written in the Lamb's Book of Life. I believe they were born again. But what I found was that a lot of them stayed for a little while, but got incredibly challenged, incredibly frustrated. That they got, they got to the place where they, they got saved, but they got bored, they got frustrated, they got depressed because they were lacking something. What were they lacking? It was power. It's power for living. 
Come on. Because, you know, you see the 420 shirts that are in the stores. We have the bookstore over here. In the, you know, 1 Corinthians 4 and 20 says what? The kingdom of God's not in word, but what? In power. But, but we didn't see the power. And, and, and that's... That power is the authority and dominion that we began to read about in the very first beginning. That's what we've been talking about all along is this authority, this dominion. It means power, and there's something about the power of that that makes all the difference in the world. When I start to see this or read this or understand this, what I'm finding is there's a lot of the body of Christ that got incredibly challenged, and the reason they got challenged was, I'll say it this way. Tommy Tenney wrote this in a book I was reading. He said, we told them we had bread in the house, but when they came to the house... All we had was the smell of bread, and they couldn't hardly find a crumb. Do you understand what I just said? If we're going to advertise bread in the house, there ought to be some bread in the house. Talk's cheap, brother. So when I, when I see this, when I read this, when I start to try to understand this, what I'm finding is when I, when I begin to study and understand this new... Can I say this? I look at the church today. I look at Harvest Chapel just because that's, my, that's, that's what God called me to, and I, I won't even get into all that, but I, I, I really monitor what, what's going on here and realize I'm trying to parallel Harvest Chapel, a 2011 church, with the first century church because if that's our model, then we need to take a look. I love in Acts chapter 17, it says, these that have turned the world upside down have come hither also. Isn't that an amazing statement? These who have turned the world upside down. And I think we ain't turning the world upside down. Am I right or not? Come on. In modern day America, Christianity is playing a much less of a role than we did 100 years ago. 100 years ago, the church was the major force in America. It was a major force in the government. If you don't believe it, go back and study. There's a guy named David Barton. Anybody ever hear of David Barton? That guy's amazing. He scares me. There's a lot of people out there who scare me. He scares me. The knowledge and the understanding he has about the government and how this country was founded 200 years ago and all the stuff that was going on. And I mean, he just quotes and boom and bang and smack. And it's good stuff, man. And he's talking about where the government was based in God. And the idea of the separation of church and state wasn't about to keep the church out of the government. It was to keep the government out of the church. We've messed this thing up, but we're getting it back. See, I'm not a prophet of gloom. I'm a prophet of hope. (laughs) I'm encouraged because you're here. (laughs) Yay. (laughs) It's a good day. You know what? Here's the deal. We're getting it. Things are turning. Things are shifting. They're coming back around, and God's helping us with that. But we've got to understand who we are, who we were created to be, the authority, the dominion that we have. I'm going to talk to you real. You start to get flu-like symptoms coming on you. You have two choices. You can either accept it or reject it. I believe if you'll stand in faith, I will not receive that. I'm not accepting that. That is not who I'm created to be. I've been redeemed from the curse. That's part of the curse. It has no right, no place, no privilege in my life, and I refuse to accept that. I believe you keep standing on that, but you can't stand on it quoting somebody else's words. That's got to come out of your heart. But when you get that kind of understanding and you understand that, your authority, your dominion, you take dominion over that, you, and you come aggressive against that, I'll tell you something, it will not land on you. It might come, but it can't stay. You might look at me and think, Pastor, I don't know about that. I'm 12 years doing it. And I'm I'm promising, my wife's in the building somewhere, ask her. 
You, you can't believe how shocked I was when I was going through that detox and thought I had the flu. I was totally shocked. I'm like, I'm not accepting this. <laughs> it was terrible. I was so frustrated. I understand this thing. This gospel's real. Our authority, our dominion is not just a good idea in a book. It has to become a reality in our life. We have the right, the privilege, and the opportunity to walk this thing out with everything in us. So this is the message Jesus proclaims when he comes. It's the arrival of God's kingdom. And he came to provide entry for all who would come. See, he said, I'm the door. How many know he says, I'm the door? Right? So we come to Jesus. I don't ever want to take away. Remember that yesterday we had to really clarify. I don't want to take away from this born-again experience. But it's so much more than just coming to the door. Can you get this picture? Your very, 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 very wealthy uncle just died and left you an incredible mansion. It is 16,598 square feet. And it's beautiful, spreads. It's on 75 acres. And you get there and you walk up to the mansion that you have just been inherited. You have inherited this mansion. And you look at the door and you go, oh, that's a beautiful door. I love this door. Look at its graceful panels. Oh, the glass is beveled. I'm so in love with the door. And you never get past the door. Because you're enamored by the door. You can't believe how great this door is. I love you, door. (laughs) There's a whole house. That's why Jesus said, I'm the door. You enter into the kingdom through me. Now, don't get this wrong, man, because I'm going to tell you something. You better stay in love with the door. Okay, you have got to stay in love with Jesus. Can I tell you something? The only reason that I'm still walking this walk is because I'm in love with the door. Amen. Do you understand what I just said? I'm with the guy who's an amazing guy. His name's Bob Shadows. I don't know if any of you have ever heard of Bob Shadows. Bob's gone home to be with the Lord, but he was out of Atlanta, Georgia. Want to hear a really neat testimony? I didn't share this, did I? Really neat testament, because I do a lot of mentoring classes, and I can't remember where I share what. But Bob Shadows, was a, just a side note, and we'll get on to something else. But, but the, the, Bob Shadows was a, a policeman for the Atlanta Police Department out of Georgia, Atlanta, Georgia. And he had moved up through the ranks, was a lieutenant. And his job was to pick up uh, high-ranking officials at the Atlanta airport. That's what he did right? As part of his job in the police department. So he'd pick these guys up and bring them, take them to different places and stuff. And that was his job. But when there wasn't somebody else there to pick up, he would find himself, you know, riding with some of the other patrolmen, doing some different things, whatever they might assign him to do that day. And he's riding down the road with the guy. And you got to understand something. Bob had been called by God into the ministry and he ran from it. And he just didn't want to do that. There's no way, man. I've seen that. I ain't doing that. And he took off. And he wasn't really even serving God at this point in his life. He's really kind of in a backslidden condition. I mean, he's aware of God. He's got a God awareness. But he's not walking this thing out at all. Everybody okay when I say that? So what's going on? He's now in a police cruiser. And they're coming down the highway. And there's a guy that's running. And he's running rather fast. So they pulled up beside him. And the guy kept looking over his shoulder like this. He kept looking over his shoulder. And Bob said they pulled up beside him. And he put his window down. And when he did, he said, are you okay? He said to the guy, are you okay, man? And the guy turned, pulled out a 45, and shot him four times in the chest. He slumps. The other officer grabs the radio, and the guy takes off through a field and runs into a woods, and he's yelling in the radio, officer's been shot, officer down, officer down. We're in pursuit on foot, and he gives the location, and he takes off, leaves Bob in the car. Why? Because he got shot four times at point-blank range with a 45 in the chest. You want to know the story? Bob sat back up. 
Bob had four bullets in his vest. And there were four bullet holes in the seat behind him. And not a mark in his chest. And he said, okay, God, you got my attention. He carried with him for years as a minister. He carried with him two pages in the middle of the Atlanta Sun. He showed me the newspaper and the whole story of what happened in his life. And he said, God, I think you got my attention now. He quit the police force and began ministry. Had a ministry called Revival, Fire, and Glory Ministries out of Atlanta. Uh, Ruth Ward Heflin from Ashland, Virginia. Anybody know who she is? Yeah, he was one of her very closest friends, and they worked together back and forth all the time. Bob was an amazing guy. But here's the deal. Go to a restaurant with Bob, right? You go to a restaurant with Bob, and here's what he'd do. He'd climb up on his chair and say, excuse me, just want you to know, I'm in love with a man. <laughs> Do you want to get a whole restaurant quiet? <laughs> the guy's about six foot three. He's a big guy, big guy, older man, and a hillbilly from Atlanta, Georgia. So he talked like that. He said, I just want you all to know I'm in love with a man. <laughs> he looked at him. Whole restaurant get quiet. He said, his name's Jesus, and he loves you too. That was never unusual for him to do that. You know what? It's a pretty good day when you can say I'm in love with a man. The reason I'm still where I am today, walking out this kingdom and understanding the mandate that I have is because I'm in love with a man. You have got to stay in love with Jesus. And when that love begins to die, you do whatever you got to to fire it back up. Can I talk to you? Some of you are married. You know exactly what I'm talking about. There's times in your marriage, maybe there's times in your life where, where it starts to get a little cold, starts to get a little distant. What do you got to do? Spend time together, man. Can I say this? I, I, I tell couples this all the time in counseling. Two, two people coming to get married. You know why they get married? Because they spend time together and have fun together. That's why they get married. Because they spend time together and have fun together. If they're not spending time together, having fun together, they probably don't want to get married. But if they're spending time together, having fun together, somebody says, hey, why don't we get married? Hey, that's a good idea. Let's get married. Make sense? Because they spend time together and have fun together. Here's the deal. You know why two people get unmarried? Because they quit spending time together, having fun together. Does that make sense? Can I tell you something about Jesus? We spend time together and have fun together. I don't know if that makes sense to you, but that makes incredible sense to me. Me and Jesus spend time together and have a lot of fun together. This is not a chore, it's a joy. I think it's amazing. I tell people all the time, you can't believe this, but I get to hang around with some of the most exciting people on the planet. We carry on, have a blast all day, and they pay me for it. <laughs> this is a great job. I got the best job in the whole world. <laughs> and I say that a lot. I really mean that. It's fun to me. I have fun with Jesus. Do you have fun with Jesus? Because if you're not having fun with Jesus, you got the wrong Jesus. I hope that makes sense. And the reason I can say that is because even as a pastor for a lot of years, I didn't have fun with Jesus. I had a job. Oh, I hope I'm making sense to you today. The reality is, man, this thing's fun. It's got to be fun. So watch this. Here's the deal. Jesus is coming. He's the door, and we've got to understand that. He's the door to get from death to life. He's the door to get from darkness to light. He's the door to get us from, from, from oh, I can go to a thousand, guilt to pardon, uh, strife to peace, shame to joy. You pick it. Defeat to victory. Whatever you want to call it. But the fact that it matters, he's the door that gets us there, and we've got to understand something. When we do that, he's the door. We've got to come to Jesus. The only way to get there is to come through the door. You've got to trust him. 
But once you start coming inside, it's an incredible life. One of the things I guess I want to tell you is he died to give us life to the fullest. Do you understand that he said the thief cometh to kill, steal, and destroy? Matter of fact, you can look at that. It's John chapter 10. I love this because if you read it in the King James Version, here's what it says. The thief cometh not but to kill, steal, and destroy. Everybody see the word? In my Bible, I have the word cometh underlined. You know why? Because cometh means he's on his way. But then Jesus says, but I have come. Oh, somebody needs to hear what I just said. The thief's coming, but I'm already here. See, everything you need to guard against the thief is already there. The thief is coming to try to bring destruction, but he says, I'm already here. I have come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. So the thief doesn't get to enter unless you take, come into agreement with him and let him. You have to choose not to come into agreement with hell. Remember that we ended that up yesterday with the idea, every decision I make, I'm either coming into agreement with heaven or agreement with hell. You get to pick. Who are you going to come into agreement with? This is your opportunity. It is, it's amazing. So what I did is I, I started looking at this and I thought, wait a minute. Jesus gave his life so that I could have life right here. He did not come so I could escape the world. He came so I could change the world. That's a good word right there. It's not about you escaping the world. It's about you changing the world that you live in. You get the opportunity to change your world. That's an amazing day. Yeah. Don't you think about this? Because every one of us in this room has a circle of influence. Sometimes your influence is big. Sometimes your influence is small. It all depends on where you're at. Make sense? On a Sunday morning when I'm standing up here on this, on this pulpit, I've got a lot of influence. There might be 350 people in this room, and I'm on an opportunity to preach to them, and they're going to hear me. They, they're they're going to listen, and I've got a place to influence their lives. I might go to a lawyer's meeting in downtown New York, and you know what? I don't have very much influence there. They don't know me. I don't know them. I could sit there. They might ask me a question. I'm going to answer, but my influence is limited there. We all have a circle of influence. Do you understand what I'm saying? In that circle of influence, you have to ask yourself, are you influencing the world around you for the kingdom of God? I hope that makes sense. Because here's what. We've got a purpose. What are we using our influence for? If I'm right, we're ambassadors of his kingdom. We ought to be using our influence to build his kingdom. Does that make sense? You build the kingdom, I'll build the church. That's what he said. Do you all get that? So we've got to ask ourselves the question is, what are we using our influence for and how well are we influencing? So, so that speaks to me, okay? So, so I look at this and I think, am I changing the world where I live? You have to ask yourself the question, are you changing the world where you live? Because there's a lot to that. He comes to prepare us. Here, this is probably huge. If Jesus came to restore everything that Adam lost, because that's what I've been saying all along, right? I believe Jesus came to restore us to a place where we could receive the Holy Spirit. Do you understand? I honestly believe the Holy Spirit lived inside of Adam in a major way. I think the Holy Spirit was the connecting link between heaven and earth. Right? But you understand that all through the Old Testament, nobody had the baptism of the Holy Spirit until John the Baptist. He gets baptized in the Holy Spirit in his mother's womb. Doesn't that seem to be freaky? Like, I don't know if that messes you up. If you ever studied, I don't know if you ever studied this or not, but guess what? Not only did John receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit, but so did Elizabeth. And afterward, so did Zechariah. They were all filled with the Spirit. 
Didn't say the Spirit came on them. You understand, like Samson and all these ones that we read about, the Spirit of God came upon them, and then he tears off the gates, and he, you know what I mean? And the Spirit of the Lord came upon him, takes the jawbone of a donkey, slays a thousand Philistines. It's because the Holy Spirit came upon him. Even Gideon, when we read about Gideon, and the Holy Spirit came upon Gideon, and he did exploits and great amazing things. But the Holy Spirit came on them, but the Holy Spirit lives in you. Jesus came to prepare us to receive the Holy Spirit. You know, it's amazing in all of creation, mankind is the only one that has the capacity to receive the Holy Spirit. You do not have a spirit-filled cat. <laughs> and, and I'm not going there. Dad's already visited that. <laughs> okay. They, they are not. <laughs> and he's in Colorado going, what'd they say, Lord? Okay. <laughs> okay. But, but watch this because this is cool and you got to understand this. Okay. Mankind has the ability to receive the Holy Spirit. Do you ever think it's amazing? Do you ever read this? Because this stuff kind of gets to me. It's probably John about chapter 20. And Jesus appears to the disciples in an upper room. And then it says something really strange. He breathed on them and says, receive ye the Holy Spirit. Does that stuff freak you out? Like, because for three and a half years they've been together. I bet he breathed on them before. (laughs) So why does it say he breathed on them? Does that mess with your head? Messes with my head until the Lord shows you some stuff. Remember that Adam was created from the dust of the earth. He breathed on him and up jumped a man. Now Jesus breathes on the Holy Spirit. Or Jesus breathes on the disciples and says, receive ye the Holy Spirit. Isn't that amazing? There's parallels here that are just mind-boggling. It's amazing to me. I'm going to let your head spin with that a while. I love this stuff. Jesus comes to restore us in that place and we're able to receive the Holy Spirit once again. I think that's an amazing thing. So when we see the sick healed, the dead raised, we see demons cast out and other miracles, they're just signs that the kingdom of God has come to the earth. The world needs to know the kingdom of God is alive and well. And it's in you. It's in you. Why? He says, when they say the kingdom's here, the kingdom's there, don't believe it. Why? Because the kingdom's in you. For so many years, we talked a good talk, but we were a powerless bride. And I won't say powerless, but we weren't near what we need to be. Can I say we're a lot more than we were, but we're nowhere where we should be yet? We're getting there. I'm so anxious for the day when the sick don't rush to the hospital, they rush to the church. Yay, God. Yay, God. See, I honestly believe that's going to happen. I, I, it's been prophesied so many different times, and I'm not even going to get into all that, but I will tell you some neat stuff. I think the church is rising up in power and becoming what we need to be. Right now, can I be real with you? Like, we see a lot of people. We get people from all over come here because they want prayer. And I get pretty excited about that. And we've seen some results. We haven't seen near the results I want to see, but we've seen some pretty good results. If you were here a couple weeks ago on a Saturday night, there was a little boy running all over the place who came here a year ago and couldn't walk. Got prayer, went home, started walking. Yay, God. And you know what they said? He'll never walk. Ha, fooled them. (laughs) I love that it's not up to the medical community. They don't get the last word because Jesus is Lord. But here's the deal. When it comes down to it, we see a lot of neat stuff that takes place. And there's a whole bunch of fun stuff going on. But the fact of the matter is it's not near as much as I want to see. But I do believe this. I believe that right now, people will come to the church because they've been all through the medical community. The medical community couldn't do nothing. Let's try them. 
Am I right or not? Come on. It's almost a last-ditch effort. Oh, my gosh. What else can we do? Well, let's try the church. Won't it be great when the church is the first effort, not the last effort? Because we can just skip all that other stuff. They charge us. The church prays free. (laughs) Come on. It's not about Blue Cross. It's about Christ Cross. Yeah. Ooh, that'll preach. Yeah, that was good. Come on. There's a place where we get this thing. But it won't happen until we walk in our authority and our dominion. And that won't happen until we get our identity right. We have to understand what we have before we can do anything with it. That's a big deal. So I see this stuff, and it speaks to me in volumes. Let's go to Matthew 22. Let me show you something I think is really cool. This is fun stuff right here. Matthew 22. There's a whole bunch in Matthew 22, but let me show you something I think is kind of neat, okay? 15 through 22. We're going to look at those verses. Matthew 22. It's right between 21 and 23. Okay. (laughs) Then went the Pharisees and took counsel how they might entangle him in his talk. Okay? Why? Because the Pharisees were always trying to mess him up. Can I tell you something? When you start walking like a believer, the church will challenge what you believe. Do you understand that? You're walking in a place where a lot of people don't have revelation. You're walking in a place where people don't understand. And because they don't understand, they're going to challenge everything that you believe. I hope you get that. Because here's what. I love it. I love that they challenge what I believe. You know why? Because it makes me sharper. Because when you ask me, or when, when, when they ask me, when somebody out there asks me, why do you believe that? I've got to tell them. But you better be able to back up what you believe by this book right here. Okay? Because here's the deal. You're in this class. Pastor Dan's teaching some amazing stuff. And, 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 and he shared his heart in an amazing way. You go out of here, and you tell somebody, this is what I believe. And they say, well, wait a minute. Why do you believe that? You say, because Pastor Dan said so, that's not going to wash. I don't care if you tell them Pastor Dan said so, Pastor Don said so, I heard it on the radio or whatever. None of that's going to matter. You better be able to back what you believe by this book. And if you can't back what, see, you don't need to just know what you believe. You need to know why you believe what you believe. Right? Come on. I did a mentoring class upstairs here a couple weeks back. It was a lot of fun because I messed with them really bad. I like messing with people, make you think, right? Because we started talking about, about Jesus' second coming, the second coming. We talked about a pre-trib rapture, a mid-trib rapture, or a post-trib rapture. And some of you might understand that terminology and some of you might not. But I said, how many of you were taught Jesus is going to come before and then there's going to be seven years of, of tribulation and then we're going to come back on the white horse and, 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 and the millennial reign? And we talked about that and a bunch of hands went up. I said, okay, how many of you were taught we'd be here for three and a half years and then we're being taken out and we're going to marriage supper and then we're going to come back and he's going to set up his millennial kingdom. And a whole bunch of the same hands went up. <laughs> but, wow, that's interesting. And I said, how many were taught that, 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 that Jesus is just going to come, we're going to meet him in the clouds and then we're going to come here and marriage supper is going to be here in the millennial reign called post-tribulation rapture. And a couple hands went up. And I said, okay, what do you believe? Nobody would answer me because they knew it was going to challenge what they believe. So I saw some of their hands, so I started asking them, well, you raised your hand for that. What do you think that? Well, this is why I think that this might be right, but I'm not sure. Okay, but what if the world asks you? See, here's what I'm at, is you don't need to just know what you believe. You need to know why you believe it. Do you understand what I just said? There are some of you in here that believe that it would be a sin to take, take a drink of any alcohol. That's the way I was taught. Don't drink any alcohol. Okay? That would be a sin. Okay? But if I'm going to teach that, I need to back it with Scripture. Follow what I just said? 
If, uh, for years, can I tell you this? For years, I believed that smoking would send you to hell. I believed it was a defilement of the temple, and the Bible says he who defiles his temple, him will God destroy. So I used that. And now today, I might tell you that I don't believe smoking will send you to hell, but it'll probably get you to heaven before your time. Never mind. Okay. <laughs> okay. I, I think a person's got to work that out in their own heart and in their own life. And I'm not even going to go there. I'm not trying to look for legalistic things to pick on. I'm simply saying this. There's some things that at one time, can I say this? At one time I believed that now my belief system has changed a little. But they weren't major things, okay? Here's the big deal when it comes right down to it. And some of that stuff is this. I believe with my heart that I need to know not only what I believe, but why I believe that. If you only believe what you believe, can I say this? Here's a true statement. You write this down. We don't normally believe what we believe. We don't normally believe what we believe. We believe what somebody we love and respect told us to believe. Do you understand what I just said? You've got to search this thing out for yourself. You've got to get it for you. You can't just have it because somebody said so. Whether Dan said so, I said so, Todd said so, Rick said so, Dave said so, Ryan said so, Lisa said so, Pastor Lori said so. It's not what somebody might have told you. It's what do you believe in your own heart that really matters? Because I've got to tell you something. It's not what you believe sitting in this class. It's what you believe on a Tuesday night when it's you and the devil, eyeball to eyeball. You better know what you believe. Because you will be challenged to your core. And I'm going to tell you something. The most people that are going to challenge your fundamental belief system are church folks. Because you believe different than they do. And they think they're right and you think you are. I'll go out on a limb. I'll tell you some things. I so appreciate when a man's convictions are strong and firm and they believe what they believe is absolutely right. Even when I don't agree with them, I admire them. Do you understand what I just said? David Hogan believes everything that he told us when he was here over those three days. Him and I could sit and discuss theology and I spent hours with him. You know what? The, we, had, we had service Wednesday night. We had a class Thursday morning. We had service Thursday night. We had a staff meeting Friday morning and a service Friday night. And those were all amazing. But for me, the most amazing time were lunch on Thursday and Friday. Because lunch for me is usually four hours. <laughs> it's one of my three favorite meals. And, and what happened was, as we sat there, we just shared hearts back and forth. It was amazing. It was just a glorious time. But I want you to understand something. We talked about things back and forth and the convictions that were so in his heart. And he opened that up and he exposed areas as we talked back and forth that I just thought were amazing. And what he said, I didn't actually agree with everything he said, but I so agreed with his conviction. And I can tell you something. If you understand this, and I'll, I'll talk to you real, real plain. But that man lives in a jungle for months and months out of the year with a bunch of Indian tribes all around him that have a price on his head. Yes. He's a wanted man by these people. They're out to kill him. You have to sleep with one eye open. And all he's trying to do is go in and love them into the kingdom of God. But you've got to have that kind of personality, that kind of tenacity. His background and his culture prepared him for that ministry. Right. 
I promise you this. If you sent me down there to pastor where he's at, I'm going to last three days and be a dead man. I'm going to go out and go, come here. I love you, man. Okay, I'm dead. <laughs> Heaven, because okay, it's over. Because I'm not wired like he's wired. Isn't it amazing that God takes us from our backgrounds and our culture and then uses it for his kingdom's sake? See, because i got to promise you this. I couldn't pastor where he's at, but i got news for you. David would destroy our church. In about two months, he would have scared everybody away. Because <laughs> you'd have come and said, but pastor, I don't know about this. And you'd say, you're wrong, and I'm right, and that's it. <laughs> so, you know, and people would go, fine. And we've been preaching unoffendable, and we'd find out if you were. <laughs> come on, you know, it's true. We're all wired different. Thank God. The diversity in the body of Christ is one of its greatest things. It's amazing to me. How'd I get there? Matthew 22. <laughs> Go there, okay? Look at verse 15, okay? I have no idea how I got there. Then went the Pharisees and took counsel. That's what it was, how they might entangle him in his talk. And they sent out unto him their disciples with the Herodians saying, Master, watch, watch what they said. They're so, oh, they're so deceitful. Master. They called him master. Isn't that amazing that they would call him master? Do you understand how sly the devil is? What are they doing? They're out here to deceive. But they call him master. There's an interesting thought here. Master, we know that you are true, and you teach the way of God in truth. Neither carest thou for any man, for you regard not the person of men. That's a pretty amazing opening statement. To come from a bunch of people who are out to deceive you and entangle you in your talk. How many of you know that spirit is still very alive in the church? Please hear this. I'm not being critical. These are church people. Do you understand? What I, come on. Does it say that? Who they send? The Pharisees, church people, took counsel. So they sent their disciples with the Herodians. Come on. There's a mixed bag coming here. Watch the next thing they said. Tell us, therefore, what do you think? Is it lawful to give tribute to Caesar or not? Do you understand what they just said? The Romans have been oppressing us for years. The Romans have brought oppression into our life. Do you think it's right that we would have to pay tax to them? Watch this. If he says, yeah, it's right, now all the Jews are mad because they don't want to pay tax. But if I say, no, don't pay tax, well, then, oh, now he's a lawbreaker. Right. Wants to start a riot, he's coming against Caesar. Do you got it? There's no right way to answer here, seemingly. Follow what I just said? He says something that I think is so powerful. And you need to catch what he was really saying. Jesus perceived their wickedness and said, Why are you tempting me, you hypocrites? Why are you tempting me, you wearers of the mask? Do you understand that? He calls them hypocrites because they put on the mask. They want to look spiritual, but they're not. They want to look like they represent God, but they represent hell. He's exposing them. I think it's amazing that over and over he continues to call them scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites. He tells them they're like whited tombstones. On the outside you look pretty, but inside you're full of dead men's bones. He calls them a generation of vipers. You're a bunch of snakes. I'm going to tell you something. That's hard. But I, I guarantee you what he was doing was trying to love them enough to shock them into the reality. You need to look at yourself in the mirror. 
Can I tell you something? There are some people, as a pastor, there are some people I just need to embrace love and try to walk them through. There are some people that God speaks to my heart and says, you got to tell them square to their face. Straighten up and knock it off. You can't tell everybody straighten up and knock it off. But some people don't understand love, hug, pet, love, and walk them through. Some people only understand stop it, knock it off, straighten up. But you always got to do it in love. Sometimes that doesn't sound like love. This doesn't sound like love. Okay? But he's really loving them back into the kingdom. I want you to see the next two verses because it gets really cool. Okay? He says, show me the tribute money. Give me a coin. So they brought unto him a penny. And he said unto them, whose is this image and superscription? Whose image is on this penny? Everybody see that? Now watch. Okay? They said unto him, Caesar's. He said to them, Render therefore unto Caesar the things which are Caesar's, and unto God the things that are God's. What did he just say? See this penny? It's been stamped with Caesar's image. Give that to Caesar. See this? It's been stamped in the image of God. Give this to God. Do you get it? You're created in God's image. So don't worry about your money. Worry about your life. Because life's not about money. Give to Caesar what has Caesar's image, but give to God what has God's image. Surrender this. Give this to God. If you give this to God, everything else will fall in place. Maybe what he was saying is if you seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, everything else in your life falls in line. But until we render unto Caesar what's Caesar's and unto God what's God's, we'll fight a battle forever. Do you know why? And I'll talk to you real plain. A lot of us who have rendered unto God what's God's are still trying to hold on to what's Caesar's. Y'all follow what I just said? Mm-hmm. He was really calling us to line up our priorities. He was really calling us and challenging us to take an inventory of our life and find out what's really important to us. So I read this stuff and it speaks volumes to me. I want to walk you through one more thing. See, I think if we're made in his image, we ought to reflect him. We're ambassadors, right? That's what we read in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Do you understand that as ambassadors, our heart's got to reflect his heart? Our life's got to reflect his life. There's so much to that. We've got to reflect his mind. Our mind's got to reflect his mind. We're called to change the way we think. What's Romans 12? Most of you know the beginning of Romans 12. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, present your body a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God. Come on, holy and acceptable unto God. And be not conformed to this world, but what? Be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. I believe that you're here today in this class because you wanted to transform. You wanted to renew your mind. The only way I can renew my mind is what? If I'm going to get a new mind, I got to first. Can I say this? And this is what I heard earlier over here. Sometimes I'm trying to get rid of my old mind so I can get my new mind. I got to tell you, I've spent a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of time unlearning some of the stuff I learned. Who knows unlearning is much harder than learning. I don't even know if unlearning is a word, but it works for me. <laughs> I've got to unlearn some stuff in my life. Why? Because I was taught a lot of stuff that maybe wasn't necessarily the way God wanted it to be in my life. So I've got to learn, unlearn some stuff so I can learn. My mind's got to be renewed. So he says be renewed and, and, and be transformed and, and get your mind renewed. See, you've got a job description. You've got destiny. You've got purpose. You're an ambassador from another kingdom. And your job description is go out and destroy the works of darkness. Destroy hell. Crush hell everywhere that you go. That's your job description. For this purpose, the Son of Man was made manifest. Why? To destroy the works of the devil. 
He's made manifest in your life to destroy hell everywhere that you go. But I'll never be able to destroy hell if I don't understand my position, my power, my dominion, my authority. That's why I keep coming back to that. It's a place that we have to walk out. It's a place that we're called to, and that speaks volumes to me. See, I believe this. We've got destiny. We've got purpose. Can I tell you this? The greatest tragedy in life isn't death. The greatest tragedy in life is living life without purpose. The greatest tragedy in life is not death. It's living life without purpose. We've got to hear that. Some of the saddest people I know are people that... I talked to a man with tears running down his face. You know what he told me? He told me if I died today, no one would know it for two weeks. He lived alone. And he said, I honestly believe people would miss me, but I could be dead in my apartment for two weeks and nobody would know it. That's a sad day, isn't it? That's a sad day. And you know what? The truth is there's reality to some of that. And you know what I said? Whose fault is that? Whose fault is that? Does that make sense? Okay. Here's the deal, man. We can't let Satan keep us in blinders fighting off the circumstances of life. We've got a purpose in our own self. I'm called to something higher, something bigger. Let me give you this phrase. Here's a strong phrase. But there is nothing outside of you that's bigger than what's inside of you. Do you understand what I just said? There's nothing outside of you that's bigger than what's inside of you. We're going to face some mountains. We're going to face some challenges. I know that. But the fact of the matter is, I face every mountain and every challenge with the idea of whatever's inside of me is bigger than what's outside of me. And that has to be a reality for every one of us. You need to understand that, okay? You've got power. It's almost like God dropped this 454 Hemi engine inside of you. You've got all this power and all this stuff is inside of you. He gave us dominion. He gave us power. He gave us authority. It's like you've got this great big thing. You could climb Mount Everest and you wouldn't even have to shift gears because this power is so inside of you and we get stuck on a speed bump at Walmart. (laughs) Come on, you know exactly what I'm talking about. You don't know how many counseling sessions that I get into only to find out that this poor little old lady is so hung up because back in 1987, Sister Sally Longtongue said something about her that she can't get past. We have carried around junk. We're stuck on speed bumps at Walmart. That's right. Come on. We've carried this stuff forever. It's like, oh, my gosh. And, and then here's the deal. We talked about it. We said we're over it. But the next counseling session, we're right back in it again. We didn't get past it. We just discussed it. I think we made it bigger. It's a place where we've got to get past this stuff. God help us to get past some of these things. It's huge to me. The kingdom of this world is temporary. And it's one day going to pass away so we can't put our trust in it. But the kingdom of God's established forever. I'm going to live and walk out this kingdom. This is a reality. We're called to something more. We can't be deceived. Don't buy the lie of the devil. Don't buy into his lies. I'm telling you, man, that whole speed bump thing is so very, very real. It's so eh, over and over and over. I spend days where I go into the counseling room and don't come out until late. 
And you know what it is? It's people who are just struggling. And so much of the stuff. There's some people that struggle with some very, very real issues. There's some people that struggle with some very, very real stuff. Finances and all kinds of different things. But the truth of the matter is, I find a lot of people in the body of Christ are struggling with just old junk that they can't get past. And there's no need for it. I got hurt. Do you know how many people got hurt by the church? Can I tell you, here's what I realized, and I didn't even realize this for a long time. I'm counseling these people, and they're, they're coming in, and, they're, and here's the deal. I talked to, talk to this, because this is a real statement, and hear what I'm about to say. There's a lot of people that have been hurt by the church. You know what they did? They go find another church. You know? One of the questions that I have to ask people all the time is, are you running to something or from something? If you're running, you're either running to something or from something right? If you're running from something, maybe you got to go back and face that something or else you're going to spend the rest of your life running from it. Yeah. Understand what I just said? That was very powerful, by the way. There's, some, there's a real strength to that. But if you're running to something, then you embrace what you're running to and move forward. You understand what I just said? Now watch this because it's a big deal. Here's the deal. A lot of times we've come through one hurt after another. And once we got hurt, we purposed in our mind and walls are up. Do you know how many walls are up around people? It's church people. You know why? Because church people get hurt in church. Here's why we get hurt in church, because we don't expect the church to hurt us. We thought we were safe. It's an amazing day that we can come to church and expect church to be perfect when it's made up of imperfect people like us. <laughs> you understand what I just said? If the church is made up of people and people are not perfect, why would we expect the church to be perfect? We're going toward that. We're trying to get to that, but we're not quite there yet. I don't know where it's at. Where's the microphone? Okay, it's fine. Bring it up. Um, here's the deal. What, what, what we deal with, and I think one of the things that we have to look at is this, is that we've been through hurts, we've been through, we focus on stuff that hurt from such a long time ago, and we've said we got past it. Why do we keep bringing it up? Do you understand what I just said? Do you understand what I just said? I remember when so-and-so hurt me, but I'm past it now. Well, if you're past it, why'd you bring it up? Just a thought. Um, what you were saying is just came into my heart was um, that's where we're learning to put people on high expectations, higher than us, where we're supposed to put God up there. And I'm learning with being around people now that I used to always put people above me. And I thank God now mm -hmm. that he's really taking a lot of the junk off me that now I'm pulling myself not higher than people, but up with God now. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? I'm not, you know, pumping myself up, but I'm feeling better about myself because I'm not going to let people, people mm -hmm. hurt me and put people up there above where God's supposed to be. Okay. Do you understand what Linda was just saying? Because, and, and I'm sure you've probably talked about some of this if you've been with six weeks with Dan, but the idea is of living without expectation. Because all of a sudden now the things I expected you to do, you didn't do. And since you didn't do that, now I'm hurt. And because now I'm hurt, now I'm going to project that. And how many of you know that if I'm, if I'm in a place of hurt and pain, what am I going to do? I'm going to bring hurt and pain to people around me. Because I'm speaking from a place of pain. It's the place I'm living. And now, and this happens all the time. Sometimes people will come in and they'll lash out and because they're mad at the church and I'm the pastor, all of a sudden now it doesn't matter what church hurt them, all churches are bad and you represent the church and all of a sudden now you're lashed out on because they had an expectation. And can I tell you that most of the expectation wasn't even realistic. Make sense? 
So we find ourselves in this place, and what we got to do is be able to walk through. Um, one of the songs, uh, we talked about the song the other night uh, that Pam wrote, and it says, that I may live unoffendable, what's the next phrase? Without expectation. Teach us what that looks like, to live unoffendable without expectation. Isn't that amazing? Can we do it? Absolutely, he told us to. Go ahead, Donna. So remember yesterday I had this question because we talked about um, Satan's fall. He, is, he was Lucifer, the head worship leader, and then he fell. Sure. And so we talked about, um, I wanted clarity on, let me see if I can, the difference between pride and confidence, or we've got to, sure. because we're seated with Christ in heavenly places, right. um, we walk in that confidence rather than that pride and just maintaining that. Okay. Yeah. Do you know what my question is? I thought it was a statement, not a question. Yeah. Well, I want to. <laughs> Don't get offended. Go ahead. <laughs> okay. I, I had asked you to bring clarity to it because. Okay. The difference between pride and confidence. Is that what you're saying? How do we, do you understand that's a fair question? It's a fair question. You understand what she's saying? I don't want to walk in pride, but I want to walk in confidence. Where do we draw that line? Yeah. Okay. You understand what she's saying? Where do we draw that line? Where does pride and confidence, pride, okay, I, I'm going to say it this way, and I'm not sure that the, my, my grammar is going to be exactly right, but the idea behind it is, is that confidence says, and here's the deal, honey, when I talk about being confident, I'm not even confident in me, I'm confident in the Christ that's in me. So my confidence is leaning toward Jesus and, I, and my identity and understanding who I am. That's not pride. That's confidence because of the finished work of the cross. That's confidence because I know who Christ is and he's in me. So my confidence isn't in my ability. My confidence is in my Savior. Y'all follow what I just said? Pride is this is what I can do. Okay? If the word pride is involved, the word I will be involved. I did this, and I did that, and I did this, and this is what my ministry is all about, and this is me, 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 me. And all of a sudden, who's ever heard Joyce Myers singing the song, me, 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 you know what I mean? It's, I've, I've watched her teach. That's good teaching. But what she's saying is that it, when it's all about me, all of a sudden, now there's a pride issue that's involved. But my confidence isn't in me. It's in the Christ who's in me. So my confidence is in this is what Jesus did in my life. And all of a sudden, now, the glory and the praise and all those things aren't about me. It's about to him. God changed. Me might be involved, but it says God changed me. Why? Because I was a mess. But thank God he came. Because he didn't see me as a mess. He saw me as a lost son. You guys got that message, right? I'll bet you heard Dan say that. <laughs> okay. But those are powerful lessons. Those are powerful things that transform the way we think. Again, remember what Jesus said. Repent. Change the way you think. Why? Because your thinking's been messed up. You've been deceived. You were ushered into a kingdom of deception. A kingdom of darkness that's, that's ruled by lies and deceptions. We've got to quit thinking that way. Change the way we think. And now why? Because light has come. That's why First Peter chapter 2 says we give praise to him who called us what? Out of darkness. A kingdom of darkness. And into to what? His marvelous light. We've been translated from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his dear son. It's, they're both recorded in there. It's amazing. So what? I don't think like that anymore. I can't think like I'm in darkness if I'm standing in the light. Who's ever walked out of a really dark room and then, and then you come out and the sun was like really blazing? And what are you doing? You're squinting because you can't. Oh my gosh, that hurts. You know what I mean? It's amazing. What's going on with that? You got to refocus. You got to refocus. That's a good word. You got to refocus. Why? Because you've walked into the light. Change the way you think. Refocus. You're not in darkness anymore. Don't think like you're in darkness. That's a good word. 
Okay? So we refocus those kind of things. I mean, I, I read this stuff and it just really does. It speaks volumes to me because we're called to be carriers of his kingdom. I'm telling you, man, if, if we can get this, we can understand that everywhere we go, we change the atmosphere where we're at. Everywhere we go, we're called to change the atmosphere. It's called to look different, walk different. We're going we're to be different. You're supposed, I love when people say, you're different. I like that. They might not always mean it well. <laughs> I just take it well. <laughs> Maybe I'm just not real bright, but I say thanks. <laughs> Come on. I've had a lot of people tell me, you're not a normal pastor. I'm like, hey, thank you. <laughs> I take that as a compliment. I'm not sure I'm supposed to. But I do. I think it's a great thing. Why? Because I believe the world's been in darkness, and we've been in deception, and we're coming out of that. Thank God for it. It's a pretty amazing day. We've got to change the way we think. I promise you that you'll never change the way you act if you don't change the way you think. If what you think is right, if, you, if, you th if you're thinking wrong, but you think it's right, why would you change? Make sense? Yeah. Come on. For years, as a young pastor, I thought my job was to make all the people that I was pastoring very happy. I'll even say this. There was a part of me that felt like I was there to support them and make sure they were okay. Now watch this, because there's some truth to that. But you can get really twisted in that. And I found that probably for the first 10 years of pastoral ministry, I was very actively building codependent sheep. Yep. Do you understand what I just said? Yep. Anything they needed, I wanted to be there for them. If they had a need, I wanted to be there for them. I wanted to pray with them. I wanted to help them. And I thought that was a spiritual thing to do. And actually what I was creating was sheep who were dependent upon a shepherd. That's right. But I was the shepherd. Yep. I don't know if that makes sense to everybody or not. And I came to realize that it took me a long time to understand that it wasn't even because they had a need. It was because I had a need. And I hope you understand what I just said. My need was to be needed. I could walk you through a whole bunch of psychological stuff, but I, I hate when psychology and Jesus mix. But here's the deal. I had this great need to be needed because of some stuff in my past life. And so what happened was I was building codependent sheep and not even realizing that that's what I was doing. And I would tell them about Jesus, but make sure that I was their link to Jesus. I think I was a Catholic priest in a Pentecostal church. <laughs> but, but watch this, because I didn't understand that. But there came a place where I started to realize, and, and you know what? I, I, I see things so different now. Do you see things a lot different now than you did 20 years ago? Or 10 years ago. Some of you aren't even 20. Like Taylor goes, what? <laughs> 15, what are you talking about? <laughs> okay, but, but, but we can see things different now. And, and even if it's only been six months, you've got to see things different now. God, keep changing that. Go ahead, Jeanette. If you can just take that thought. Because I was just discussing this this morning. Because I was exactly where you're, what you were saying. And I was... I was with the Lord last night, and I was saying, my heart's different. I used to be like that. And I was saying, but my heart's not like that. And I think it's good that I'm not like that. But then I'm thinking, well, is it, Lord? Because I don't have that feeling where I used to cry for the people. 
Like mm -hmm. I used to cry for the people, and I think it's maturity. Okay. Okay, but God, it, and I think it is now because I'm questioning myself because I do believe it's maturity because I don't want them needing me because I can let them go. Right. And I want to let them go because I don't want to be their God. I got you. You, mm -hmm. you know what I'm saying? Absolutely. I don't need them and I don't want them to need me. So can you? I, I think I can. Uh, watch what I'm about to tell you. I don't ever want to become, the word is a pseudo-savior. Right. A savior in place of. Right. Do you understand? Pseudo-savior means like, like a, does everybody know that phrase? A savior in place of Jesus. You know what I mean? I don't ever want to become somebody's savior. Here's the deal. I want to be a signpost. Yes. Signpost is a good title. Official signpost for Jesus. <laughs> Pointing the way to Christ. Right? I love what Paul says. Paul says something to his spiritual son that I think is incredibly impactful. He said, follow me as I follow Christ. Do you understand that? Follow me as I follow Christ. What he was saying is, I'll point the way. You keep coming. I'll point the way, but let's follow Jesus together. It has to be, watch this, and here's the terminology, as I follow Christ. What's that mean? That means if I'm not following, you keep going. Do you get it? Yeah, and that's a strong word right there. But what we got to get to understand is this, is that our job is to be a signpost and point people to Christ, but never become a savior for them. Is that okay with that? You had a thought. Go ahead. Well, I have a question um, because we're told that we're not supposed to be independent, but we're not supposed to be codependent. We're supposed to be interdependent. So how does that I think we're supposed to be God-dependent. Like? I know, but, <laughs> okay. you know, in the word. Okay. Like there's a thing about um, interdependence, and I don't totally understand that. Explain what you mean when you say interdependent. Well, that's what I'm asking because it says, you know, because I know we're not supposed to be codependent. Right. And we're not supposed to be independent thinking we can do everything by ourselves. Right. But there's an interdependence, like a um, coming together on things. I don't know. Okay. I think I can explain that pretty quickly. Do you, did you have an answer for her? I, I think I do. Okay. Hang on. Go ahead. I think it's the church, de depending on the church as a body, like the hand needs the eye and the... And so on and so forth. Okay. I, I think you're right. Now, I think we'll cover that. Watch this. There's a place where we support one another. There's a place where we encourage one another. As a matter of fact, do you know there's only one scripture in the Bible that says go to church? Yeah. Who knows where it's at? 10. Hebrews 10? 10? 25. 10 and 25. He says, not forsaking the assembling of yourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another. Even so much the more as you see the day approaching. What's he saying? Exhort means to lift up and encourage. Do you know what that means? That means when we come together, we ought to be lifting up and encouraging one another on a daily basis. We ought to be encouraging one another. We ought to be lifting one another. The fact of the matter is, can I tell you this? That if you come to church down and depressed, you ought to leave feeling better than you came. Unless you're backslidden and you ought to leave feeling horrible unless you got saved. Okay. <laughs> okay. Yeah. But the truth of the matter is, is we ought to be lifting up and encouraging one another. I ought to leave church lighter than I came in. Yes. Come on. It's truth. We ought to leave encouraged. We ought to leave lifted up. The body of Christ ought to be lifting one another up, not tearing one another down. You get to choose. Are you on the building crew or the wrecking crew? Come on. Oh, that's a good word. Here's where we're at. We get to pick. And the fact of the matter is God calls us to an amazing place where we ought to be lifting one another up. We ought to be encouraging one another. Do you have it or do you have it? Right here, and then we're going to go back to Shana. Okay, go ahead. There's a book out that uses that term, and um, it's called Living the Lifestyle Jesus Intended Us to Live. 
It, it explains about two kinds of trauma, but the, the point is about that the, the trauma goes out of your life, your fragmented soul comes back together, and you're totally dependent upon God. Okay. You, know, you have this great relationship now. You've been mended. Now you can. It's exactly what you're teaching here in full. Then it must be right. Okay. No. No. Okay. Okay. Here's where we're at, and this is a. This is. It's a really, really big deal. Here's the deal. I've got to get. When I have. Remember that I've said this a couple of times. But when we get this vertical relationship right, it will sustain every horizontal relationship. But if we don't have the vertical, there's nothing to support the horizontal. And what happens? The horizontal falls to the ground. There's nothing to support that. I've got to have the vertical so that the horizontal fits. That's a big deal. Shana, go ahead. That's kind of what I was going to say just to kind of encourage Tricia. Is Mm -hmm. that when we go into church with that kind of mindset that we're lacking something. Right. And, and that we have to go there to figure out what's wrong or what we're lacking. We're forgetting about this. Right. And that's keeping us selfish. And if we realize we're lacking nothing and that our Father has all good things for us, we can go into church to be there for them. We're not going there to see what we can get from this person who's stronger in this or this person who's more rooted in this. We can go and love on them. And that's what's edifying the cycle and makes it interdependent, not codependent. Okay, good word. Good word. Because here's the deal. Watch this. If I come with the idea in mind to be a blessing, come on, who's ever been a blessing and not got blessed by being a blessing? <laughs> Do you understand what I just said? Like, like if I can come in, okay, and it, and it is, it's a really, really big thing. But the fact of the matter is, if I come in and I see you and you're depressed and you're hurting and you're really going through a tough place and I can come by and speak an encouraging word to you, maybe pray with you, Holy Spirit comes, lands on you, and you give me this great big super duper giant bear hug and you say, oh, I feel so much better. Guess what? So do I. <laughs> Because you got to be a blessing and God flowed through you and you were an open gate and heaven came out of you and you got to touch the earth. Yeah, that's like the greatest feeling on planet earth. Come on, do you ever get hugged by somebody that almost hurt you? (laughs) Doesn't that feel really cool though? Come on, let's be real. When you, you, and then there's, okay, I'm going. Okay, here's the deal. When When I was a little boy, my dad taught me, when you shake somebody's hand, shake their hand. Shake your hand, boy, shake your hand, because my dad was, okay, so shake your hand. So, did you ever get one of them dead fish handshakes? Did you ever get hugged by somebody you knew didn't want to hug you? Most of you, if you've been around Harvest Chapel long, know I'm a hugger. I'm a big-time hugger. I believe in hug therapy. I think you need eight hugs a day just to be healthy, okay? So I'm going to get a double portion, okay? Because I'm into hugging. I just think, I just think there's something about just loving people and the love of God just comes through. And I honestly believe that a lot of people, I believe a lot of people's days can be encouraged just by being hugged. Do you know there are some people that absolutely hate to be hugged? They need a sign when they come in because <laughs> I don't know that. And sometimes people are weird about, you know what I mean? And, and that's okay. And everybody's got their thing. But the idea is, is that sometimes when you hug somebody, they feel like they, they don't want you to hug them. They're not ready to be hugged or whatever it might be. And you understand that. And there's a grace for that. And you've got to just kind of be, you know, we want to honor all men. So hear that the right way. We want to honor everybody. But there's a place there. The idea is, is that sometimes when you're pouring out, to touch somebody's life and make a difference for them, you can't sow and not reap. 
Do you understand what I just said? You can't sow and not reap. Why? Because God said that if you sow, you'll reap. Whatsoever a man, be not deceived, God is not mocked. Whatsoever a man sows, that shall he also reap. Galatians, what, 6 and 9? Probably. Okay, so watch this. This is huge. The fact of the matter is that as we pour out a blessing, right? Blessings are coming back. Remember that I talked to you a little while ago about I've been walking in divine health for 12 years? I got a hold of that as a truth, and that became a truth in my life, and I believe that. Here's another deal that I'll tell you. There's hardly ever a day that goes by that I'm not praying for the sick. What am I praying for? Health. So I guess I'm sowing health. I'm going to reap health. Because if I sow it, I got a promise that I'm going to reap it. Does that make sense to everybody? I just believe that's truth. So here's the deal. And I do this a lot, actually. And I'll even do this intentionally. If I know that you're going through something, and I know somebody else is going through what you're going through, I may get you to pray for them. And I do that a lot. If you're in a funk and I find somebody that's in a funk, I say, come here, I want you to pray for them. They're in a funk. They need deliverance. (laughs) You know what? Because I believe if you sow it, you're going to reap it. I believe if you pour it out, it's going to come back. Come on. If I'm praying for you to get get healed, I believe healing can come to me. Because I believe whatever I sow, I'm going to reap. That's what the Bible says. It's not my good idea. It's God's good idea. I think it's a great one. See purpose in your heart, man. This is what I'm going to do. Can I tell you this? Did Dan tell the story about dragging his leg for three weeks? Yeah. And what did he keep doing? Praying for the sick. Yep. Makes sense? Yep. Makes sense to me. I don't understand all this, but I understand a few things. I'm just convinced that I want to sow into everybody I can sow into. And I believe the more I sow, the more I'm going to reap. It makes sense to me. That's what God does. It's his word. It's not my idea. So there's a bunch to this. So, so I see this, and I, I, I really believe this. I believe we're just going to keep sowing this stuff out. We're going to pour out because why? Because I'm not, I don't want to get blessed for me to be blessed. I want to get blessed so I can be a blessing. Yeah. Didn't Abraham get blessed for what? So he can go and be a blessing. I blessed you. Now go be a blessing. Isn't that what God's telling us today? I blessed you. Go be a blessing. Yeah. Come on. we got to radically infect this world. We, we, we just, there's a place where we infest the world with the goodness of God. I honestly believe the great move of God that's coming is going to, there will be a revival because of the goodness of God. I believe it'll be a revival because of his goodness. Because the world, I'm going to tell you something. I'm not a prophet of doom. I'm not a prophet of gloom. I don't go into all this kind of stuff. But I'm going to tell you something. If everything I can see coming together, the way it's coming together, the way things are going... I honestly believe that the world is in a big change right now. There's a lot of change. And I don't know if y'all know the state of the economy and all the different things. And I'm not into all the gloom and doom. And, you know, Obama talked about by August 2nd, we could go bankrupt as a nation if they don't lift the debt ceiling. And I don't even listen, I don't even listen to the news very much. But here's the deal. And I'll tell you what's going on in my heart. I understand the world system, the way that it's been over the years. I've studied history. Dynasties last about 500 years. I won't even get into all that. But I'm going to tell you something. There's a whole bunch of things that are shifting and changing in the world around us. And when I see those things shifting and changing, one of the things I understand is the kingdoms of this world are going to rise and fall, but the kingdom of God is going to stand forever. So I'm glad that I'm not an ambassador of the United States, and I love the United States. We live in the greatest country on the planet, but I'm not an ambassador of the United States. I'm an ambassador of an everlasting kingdom. That's not going to change. I'm not going to tell you, they don't even have a debt ceiling. (laughs) The 
they got gold floors. Who needs a debt ceiling? <laughs> Come on. Go ahead. I remember. You have to use that technology. <laughs> it was on standby. I remember years ago, one of my pastors said basically what you're saying. He said, if you're, if you're feeling blue or you're feeling down or you're anything like that, go and do something for somebody else. Get out there and do something. Pray for somebody. Or find somebody that's worse off than you and do something for them, and it'll change your perspective. Because you'll get, you get that blessing right back, and it's going to make you feel good because you were able to do something for somebody else out of love. Absolutely. You can't bless them without being blessed. That's a big deal. So it speaks volumes to me. Let me do this with you, and, and we're going to close with this because it's, it's just really, really big in my heart. But sometimes we go through. Graham Cook said something I thought was amazing. He said, if you don't like the thought that you're thinking, have another thought. <laughs> have another thought. Come on. Because the honest truth is my mind's being renewed by this. My thinking has got to line up with this book. And when it doesn't, I need to have another thought. I, remember I said this yesterday. This is such a big deal. It's worth, it's worth memorizing. I don't want one thought about me to be different than the way God thinks about me. I don't want one thought about me in me different than the way God thinks about me. Do you understand that? I want to think about me the way God thinks about me. That's why I was telling you yesterday, you got to look in the mirror and go, wow, you are amazing. Because God thinks you're amazing. That's not pride. That's confidence. Do you understand when Don asked that question? See, I honestly do that. I look in the mirror and say, hey, you are amazing. And you're kind of cute. Need a little hair, but you're okay. Okay. <laughs> Here's the deal. It's okay. I do that. I think it's right. I think you can look in the mirror and tell yourself you're amazing over and over. Keep telling yourself till you do believe it. Come on, man. There's a place where we just, and I believe that, I believe we just keep talking to ourselves and, 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 we, and we just take this and we embrace this till it becomes our reality. Till it becomes our reality. If I prayed for five deaf ears and none of them opened, but I prayed for the sixth one and it opened, you know what? God heals deaf ears. Amen. I'll embrace that reality and continue to pursue it till I pray for six more and all six get healed. Do you understand what I'm saying? I believe this. This thing's real. And we keep pursuing it because we know it's real. And it becomes real in my heart. I've got to have an 18-inch transfer because I've got a whole lot here, but I need it all here. 18-inch transfers are good. It's got to get from our head to our heart so we embrace it as a reality. It's got to be very, very real for every one of us. I'm going to tell you something. Here's the deal, and I'll give you this, and we're going to close. I believe that everything that Jesus walked in is mine. Tomorrow I'll tell you why. It's called the threshold covenant. It's called the threshold covenant. I will talk to you tomorrow about Passover and the threshold covenant. I run with a bunch of folks that love Jesus with all their heart in an amazing, 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 amazing way, amazing way. I have a lot of folks that are friends of mine, not just in Harvest, but all over the place, who preach only New Testament. I love Old Testament truth. You know why? Because the Old Testament was constantly pointing to Jesus and telling us what was going to be available when he came. Guess what? He came. It's available. It's yours. Tomorrow we're going to talk about the Threshold Covenant. If you look in your Bible under Threshold Covenant, you will not find it. But I'll tell you all about it tomorrow. That'll make you come back. Okay. <laughs> okay. Here's the deal. 
We have a kingdom authority. We have a kingdom mandate. Everything about the kingdom. We have to understand something. We are called to live and walk this kingdom out. This is the reality. The reality of the kingdom has to become your reality. I want to tell you this. Here's a big deal. Kingdom truths have to become kingdom realities. Do you understand what I just said? Taking kingdom truths and making them become kingdom realities in our life. God, teach us this. Because I don't care how much you learn on a Tuesday. I want to know what you live on a Thursday. You understand what I just said? We're going to walk this thing out, man. It's real. It's fun. Let's go after it with all of our hearts. Bow your head with me. Father, I just thank you. It's an amazing day, God, as we continue to walk out kingdom concepts. God, that they become such a reality in every one of our lives. I'm asking you, God, help us to understand this dominion mandate. Help us to walk out what we've really, really, really been called to. God, that you would teach us if the heaven, even the heavens belong unto you, but you've given the earth to the children of men, then help us to possess that which you've called us to possess. Help us to bring the reality of your kingdom everywhere that we go. Help us to realize, God, that the God of this world has blinded our eyes, but the antidote to ignorance is knowledge. And God, as we get knowledge of your truth, we walk out those truths. God, you came to establish a family of spirit sons. You came, God, to, to, to establish a kingdom, a kingdom of kings. You want to extend your government all throughout the earth. God, I thank you. We are the redeemed ones. The Bible says we've been redeemed. You came to redeem them that were under the law. God, I thank you for full redemption that brings me back to my original value. Oh, God, I thank you, Lord, for what you're doing, that we would stand as ambassadors, ambassadors of your kingdom, God ambassadors, God, that represent the king and his kingdom and your interests, God, that we would walk with a kingdom mentality everywhere we go, that the gospel of the kingdom, not just prosperity, not just deliverance, not just tongues, not just the gospel of salvation, but the gospel of the kingdom continues to go forth from us because the kingdom of God is in power, not just in word. Teach us, God, what that looks like and help us to follow this thing through every step of the way. Let these things burn in us. Let's be branded with them, God, that it's the reality of who we are. Much of what we said today was repetitious, but God, it's got to be till it gets so ingrained in us, Lord, that we're walking through the kingdom, God. We're not just stuck at the door, but God, we're coming farther and farther and farther. You did not give your life so we would escape the world. You gave your life so we would change the world. Help us to change the world that we live in. Help us, God, to make that a reality, God, that we would be there, that we would walk strong. You've prepared us for the Holy Spirit, so God, let the Spirit of the Lord just live inside of us and walk through us and God, that you would touch us uh, as we render to Caesar that which is Caesar's. But we give to you what is rightfully yours. Your image, your stamp is upon us. God, let us walk that out. Father, I thank you. We have purpose. We have destiny. Let us live life with purpose, God, as we walk out the kingdom of God on the earth. Father, we just bless each one. May our hearts be branded. May they be stamped, God. May there be a fire in our belly that we would be like Jeremiah. It's like a fire shut up in my bones. I can't hold this thing back any longer. There is so much more that you're wanting to do. Teach us what that looks like and help us to walk it out that we would change the world that we live in and use our influence for the kingdom's sake in Jesus' name. And everybody said amen. Amen. Thanks for hanging with us. Tomorrow we'll look at the threshold covenant, okay? Bless you.